Alright. Let's get a quick mic check on you. Sounds good. Thank you, Sergeant Williams. Appreciate that. It's one of the two, right? One of the two, one of the few, the proud, and I forgot the rest. Sorry. All right. So we have. Oh, hang on a second. Why you got yourself? I'll just keep doing this. Okay. So we're on atrial fibrillation, right? So just a quick recap. As I'm looking at something real quick. So we talked about AFib like a little bit last time, right? I think it was like slide 94 or something like that. So um, and so basically, this is your brain during PA school. You got to know all this, and you got it down, right? How how are you guys doing? How is the yikes? <laughs> as soon as I did that, I saw like four thumbs down. And somebody grew two more arms. It was weird. Somebody's like this. They're like, that's good. That's where you're gonna be at. If you're here. And then if you're here, you're probably normal, but this is where we kind of want you at, like mixed feelings. It's like the beginning of a relationship, like, I don't know, like, but my mom likes him, whatever. <laughs> He's good for you. <laughs> what do you know? So I got divorced the first time, just saying. <laughs> now people think I got an arranged marriage, it's not, I promise. <laughs> Alright, here we go. Yeah, we have a good start. There you go. That's what you need to do. You need to start laughing and relax a little bit. Stop getting told what to do here. I think we forget that you pay us. We forget that sometimes. People forget that. Alright, so I think we did remember this, right? Like our mnemonic on how to remember atrial fibrillation. So just so we get a real quick backup of uh, what AFib is, uh, you guys are already doing EKG, right? How's that going for you? Okay, good. It's no, you just okay. Some people thumbs down again, and you grew a third arm this time. Great. Okay, awesome. So here's the thing. Um, it's not supposed to be easy, right? Like, cause really, what is an EKG? It's a bunch of squiggly lines to let me know you're still alive, right? You take the next step. You got to know what each one of those bumps and lumps mean on the EKG. So. Um, I know we went over AFib, but I just want to do a real quick breakdown because there's going to be a lot of questions on AFib on your exam. There's going to be a lot of questions on AFib on the pants, okay? So with AFib, number one, we need to know it's irregular and irregular, right? That's the first thing we're going to tell you. If they don't show you an EKG like this. The other thing is you're not going to be able to see any distinct P waves. You won't be able to really see what the P waves look like. And again, it's going to be irregular, irregular. Now, if it's a controlled rhythm, uh, or controlled rate with AFib, it's anywhere from 70 to 110 beats per minute, not like normal sinus rhythm when it's 60 to 100. So controlled rate is 70 to 110 in AFib. A slow ventricular rate is going to be anything less than 60 beats per minute. Anything more than 110 beats per minute is a rapid ventricular response. Okay? Just keep that in mind. We're cool with that, right? 
heart. And then once you find somebody with AFib that they've never had AFib before, and if you think that it's within them in 48 hours that they've been dealing with AFib, we have to determine if we're going to anticoagulate that patient or if we're going to cardiovert them out of that, okay? But before we start shocking people because it's so much fun to do and see, we have to make sure there's no blood clot because if there's a blood clot there that we didn't first look at with a transesophageal echocardiogram or a transthoracic echocardiogram, then we shock the patient and then the blood clot goes up into the brain and causes a stroke and that's not the business we're in, right? So you have to do an echocardiogram before you decide to do cardioverting uh, the patient. We determine how to determine, that's determined more times than I need to say, but how to determine if you are even going to anticoagulate the patient and the things that we talked about were the uh, CHAD score and the CHAD's VASC score. Um, and they are not too different, but they are a little bit different, especially when it comes to age. Where in CHAD score, if you're more than 75 years old, you get two points. And then in CHAD's VASC, it kind of breaks down a little bit more. For the sake of keeping you less stress, I usually like to use the CHAD's VASC score because, again, it is a little bit more sensitive. And I think that's what you should use when you get into the clinical setting. Now, I know some of you think about this and you're like, clinical setting, that's great, we don't need to know about the test. Um, you are not far away from the clinical setting, you're just 20 months away. Okay, just think about that. That's just like two pregnancies away, like two 10-month cycles. You, again, I know what to tell you, that 20 months, that's going to go down like this. Trust me, this is the longest two years of your life. You should know that. So if you're struggling now, just know you're going to struggle a lot more, okay? And be ready for it. It's always better than you anticipated. But it's still not that far away, okay? So when you do get out, you should be able to pick up some of these things and realize when to use this clinically. This is very important because that's what we're teaching you to do. I'm not just, I, I don't teach students. I teach colleagues, right? So eventually, I need to be able to call you and tell you, hey, you're the cardio PA, I'm the ER PA, what do you want to do? I'm not quizzing you, I, I just want to know what to do. And this, this still happens to this day where I'm still calling students, not like because I want to, but like because I have to, when they're on call, the, the student is on call that they were my student before, and they're giving me advice on my patients. So just be ready for that. When they tell you what to do in the clinical setting, that is closer than you think. You don't see it right now. You don't see it right now, but trust me, it's a lot closer than you think. So this is basically just a breakdown of how to treat somebody with um, that with uh, AFib, and once you've decided what to do with them, um, if you control their weight, what do we do now, right? Do we take them out of it? When you cardiovert somebody out of AFib, you're resetting their heart, and that's what cardioverting means. It's just shocking the system and then getting it out of it and trying to put it back into normal sinus rhythm, okay? Where now, instead of you just fibrillating out of the place, you're actually sending a response from the sinus atrial node and making something happen normally the way it's supposed to. Um, and then what are we going to do pharmacologically? Are we going to give you something if the rate is not controlled, if the rhythm is not AFib? Are we going to give you an antiarrhythmic like amiodarone? And then what do we need to think about when we give amiodarone? You guys are taking pharmacology, I heard you're having a blast. <laughs> when I mean blast, I mean it. You know, I tell you, not everybody's like this. It's, look, but if you're not failing, you're doing it together. You see? That's, that's the important. You're doing it. You're doing it right. I remember I made that joke the first time, like I came back and I was like, I teach for like three months 
and I saw like the results. And I think you know, like when you don't care about the results anymore, because there's always like an 84, right? Somebody like, messes up the card for whatever reason, and then like you see it on the table, and I'm like, damn, what is this? It's a lot of 40s. It's like what the temperature is right now out in the west. Um, what is that? They're like, oh, it's the pharmacology. I'm like, well, I am proud of you. They're like, because mm, all of you failed together. That's, you took it to the extreme. I'm happy about it. But you're going to get through it together too. I'm telling you, it works. It works. Um, somehow, another tangent, that made it back to me. You guys really took that to the heart. I don't have Instagram. I have a TikTok, which you should definitely follow, um, because I need followers. Um, and then, <laughs> I see some of your TikToks. All right. Just saying, just saying, don't shoot TikToks in school, man. Trust me. It will come back around. I'm just saying. And so, with me, I, somebody, like, this is, where is he? Where did he go? Daniel. Right? Yeah, how's, how you doing, man? Look at that small world, bro. So that got back to me because he posted something and he said like, oh, together or something. Good, that was good. I'm about that. You want to know how small this world is? Oh, you, you found out? It's a really small world. So believe it or not, you want to find out? Okay. All right, let's just do it and then we'll talk about it. It's not even that important, I'm playing. Um, so you'll know also that this community is very small. You know there's only like like 200,000 PAs in the country, right? And only like maybe like 10,000 in Florida. And then like maybe like 500 of them in the ER, right? So it, it'll get back. So Daniel um, was posting this picture and he's followed by a nurse that works with my wife in the urgent cares, right? So, I think it's the first time she told me she's proud of me, by the way. Thanks. Uh, so, that's not true. I think she said it once or twice before. So, she sends me a text. She's like, babe, you need it. I was like, first of all, I've been made it. Where are you at? <laughs> so, so, she goes, so Daniel went to high school with that girl who also went to high school with my wife in Westland. That's like Hialeah town. Like, I was in Westland Morrison, by the way. It's still nothing to do there. Um, so um, that's, and then I'm like, wait, what do you mean? And then so thank you for the message, by the way. I saw the message. I'm not going to give the message. I appreciate that. That means a lot. And so she apparently went to school with you because you were friends with one of her ex-boyfriends. Right. So I know Daniel apparently, and some, somehow I know everybody somehow, some way. So thank you for the comments, I appreciate it. Um, I mean that, see it all comes together at the end of the day. Um, AFib. <laughs> My transitions are horrible by the way. So um, again, so if you're going to put something on amiodarone, um, you had a question? Oh, okay. Just starting to wave on your own. No worries. <laughs> Did you have a question for her? Oh, 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 good. Okay, I'm not that guy. I don't like. I might actually ask you a question. Don't be discouraged by that. All right, it's just you did this. All right. So, 
Um, if you put somebody on amiodarone, then you got a lot more things to worry about. And that's, oh, that's what we're talking about, pharmacology and how you sucked it. It's cool. So basically, with amiodarone, you got to check the thyroid functions. You got to look at their vision every six months. You got to do a chest x-ray every so often. So again, we're giving a lot of these medications just really, really, but you can't. You can't just do that. So then we have to put patients on also anticoagulants. Once you determine that this patient does need anticoagulants, and we've all... We have a good amount of anticoagulants now. I'm sure you've heard of them. When I was in school, it was just warfarin. Uh, just so you know how fast we move, in 2010, it was just warfarin. And then Prodaxa just came out. You guys know about Prodaxa here and there? Okay, good. So, um, and that's basically what I'm going through right now. And the heart rate, yeah, you can put them on a beta blocker, but be careful with that. Okay, car anticoagulants. So, so when Prodaxa came out, um, Prodaxa was supposed to be like, look, forget the INR. You don't need to check the INR. All you need is good kidney functions, and you can put this patient on anticoagulant if they don't have a valve problem, which we're going to talk about a little bit later too. Okay. So basically, if they don't have any valvular issues, no mechanical valves or anything like that, we need to anticoagulate them for that, which we'll talk about, then you could put them on Prodaxa. The problem was we were getting very good with Prodaxa and preventing why we anticoagulate them, to prevent a stroke, right? Because we talked about if it fibrillates, it's not going to go through a system and any blood that sits around and just fibrillates will clot up. And then when that action happens of that atrial kick, it'll kick it up to the, the bloodstream of the, the cerebral tissue and then you got a clot. Simple stuff, right? I, I cannot teach you the path of that because then that's Dayano and yeah, and so that's his thing. So now we're like, okay, we're doing very good with Prodaxa in preventing clots, except the study comes out two years later, hey, great job, you prevented a lot of clots, nobody's getting anything from this, except they're dying from clots in the heart. So we gotta do something about that. So Prodaxa kind of like took a left turn, all right? And then Zerata comes out, now you need to know something. So. Factor 10A inhibitors, that's how they get their name. 10A is XA. Notice all these medications have XA in their name. Zeralta, XA, Prodaxa, XA. Right? Even if you like a Pixaban, Rivixaban, they all have XA. That's how you tell. That's the trick. That's how you tell it's a 10A inhibitor. So then Prodaxa uh, kind of like took a backseat. Johnson Johnson, by the way, uh, then came out with you know Zeralta. And Zeralta was good at not only just meeting kidney functions, but also having you to just give the medication right off the back. You didn't have to check the INR, and if you think, like, if you don't know what that's like. So basically, you have to have a therapeutic level when somebody's on, on warfarin. And for AFib, it's 2.0 to 3.0. Did I go over the levels last time? Okay, so warfarin levels, so INR levels, normal INR levels are 0 0.8 to 1.2, okay? When somebody is on warfarin, for AFib, it's 2.0 to 3.0. That's what makes it therapeutic. Because remember, we want that INR higher so that we can make the blood thinner so that they don't clot, right? Now, if you have a mechanical valve which predisposes you to more clots with or without AFib, your INR level should be 2.5 to 3.5. Now, warfarin isn't that bad because the good thing about warfarin is it has an antidote. What is the antidote to warfarin? Vitamin K, you say. Very good. Awesome. Vitamin K, right? Somebody said it, right? I'm just pretending somebody said it to get some enthusiasm out of the rest of you. So vitamin K is the antidote for warfarin, and that works great because we can reverse it 
almost immediately. But now you ask, why would I want to reverse it? Because what if Abuelo does fall down, and he's on warfarin, and now he has a bleed in his head? What do we do about that? We have to reverse the effect of it because there's a blood thing in there. If not, he's going to continue to bleed, so we have to give him an anticoagulant or an antidote for the anticoagulant. Okay? That's something that Pradaxa and Zeralta at the time did not think about. And neither did Eloquist. When Eloquist came out, they're like, hey, look, forget the INR, forget the kidney functions. And you're going to be like, why are you telling us the story of anticoagulants? Trust me, because you need to know this clinically. Because now, although there are great medications, I don't have to worry about your INR, I don't have to do anything else, but I don't have an antidote. That means if you do fall in the bathroom on Pradaxa, Eloquist, or Zeralta, you're basically gone. You're going to bleed to death in your brain. Right? Except Pradaxa comes back, they're like, okay, we got a little bit better in preventing clots in the brain and the heart, plus we have the antidote for Pradaxa. And just like the amazing clinicians we are, it'll cost you $10,000. It's very expensive, very expensive. Vitamin K is a vitamin, like Fred Flintstone could literally save your life in this matter. Like if you didn't think about that, you guys didn't get that joke. It's a Flintstone vitamin joke. No worry about it. All right, cool. So, um, but that's the truth of it, right? And so again, but it's just such a pain in the ass to go and check every week, make sure my animal level is right. I can't eat like spinach. I can't eat like you know, lettuce and all these other green things because that alters the level of INR when you're on warfarin. It increases the absorption of it. Sometimes it decreases the absorption of of warfarin. So the people that don't have any valid issues or the people that you're not worried about falling down, that's where the 10 inhibitors make more sense because it's easier to take, you don't have to worry about kidney issues and you don't have to worry about them falling down, okay? And if they're young, we, we assume they got some money, and they're gonna, we're going to probably evacuate the bleeding anyway. So this is the CHADS 2 score. This is a very common score. I urge you, while you're in your uh, journey of PA school, to download a few apps. One of them should be um, MDCalc. MDCalc. Because we're going to teach you evidence-based medicine. And MDCalc, this calculator, amongst many other calculators that I'm going to talk to you about, is something that you should have. Star it, favorite. This is one of the things you should have. I'm an emergency medicine guy, so I also have WikiEM. I love WikiEM because it's easier. Um, and then I know you guys remember those little pocketbooks for um, like medications, and they have all the medications. I'll give you an easier one. There's one from the Emergency Medicine Residents of America that breaks everything down, even for my colorblind ass. I'm telling you right now, like by color coding and by disease system, it tells you what antibiotic to use on these patients. So EMRA is another good app to download. I think it's like 10 bucks, and I know you got that because, well, you probably don't have that actually, because don't you pay like 10 month monthly fees or 10 dollar monthly fees or something to your groups? No, you guys don't have a monthly fee to for like what's Passel? How much? Right up the front? Oh, so you're good. You have the 10 bucks. You're chilling. Watch some names, guys. You're good. Um, what else? This is the one I want you to remember. So take a screenshot of it or whatever you want to do. All right. So that, that'll come up on the exam, too. 
So again, we, I kind of like broke all this down for you. The anticoagulant, the normal values and things like that. All right. Um, why don't you do that eventually? There comes to the point, because I know you guys are doing this like in study mode, right? Where you write down notes on the bottom or something. But eventually I want you to put it in presentation mode. Okay? Because I want you to do something with me. Um, again, this is for weight control and rhythm control. We went over this already, beta blockers. Now, um, look at on the other see? Increases coumadin levels. See, so you can't just just get that. That's that's the beauty of of, our, of the medicine that we practice, is that you realize there's a lot of medications for one thing. But you have to know how to play with each each different medication. And I know you're struggling right now, but I promise you it's something that you'll figure out. I promise. Holiday heart, I think I kind of went over this the last time. This is when like uh, you know you start binge drinking during the holidays and then you put yourself in AFib or you're basically just celebrating, you know, the end of PA semester or whatever it is, and then you go to the wharf, which gross. But um, you know, then you end up with a holiday heart because it's too much pressure into the heart, you get into a fast heart. You guys know you like drink alcohol and you're like this? Never? If not, you don't drink enough, nothing. So, um, so that's basically it. You gotta stop. That's when you gotta stop. And you always got to like counteract with water, which is what you're supposed to drink, right? And then eventually it'll get better, I promise. But now you're gonna be at the river. Yeah, I think you're having your heart. <laughs> Which would be awesome because we know what it is and we're great. Um, what else? Yeah, we did this already. We're good. Atrial flutter basically is the same way that you're going to treat um, as if you would treat a fib. Okay, but here it has a distinct look at it, um, and it's something called uh, a sawtooth pattern. I have no idea why I would not put a picture of that, um, but there's something you should look at. That EKG is super particular looking, and it does look like a sawtooth pattern. Okay. Um, that's not one that we're going to tell you on an exam and tell you there's a sawtooth pattern appearance. Like, I think it's too easy to ask you. This is one I would show you an EKG of, okay? This is very important, okay? So, the treatment is basically the same thing. Make sure that the rate is controlled, make sure there's nothing else going on, and determine if you're going to anticoagulate this patient. So, the way we assess this, the way that we, we, we are going to treat this, is going to be the same way as if we're treating AFib. Same thing. You got 48 hours to make a decision of anticoagulation. You gotta make sure that if there's gonna be some sort of clot in there in the, in the heart to do an echocardiogram before we cardiovert the patient, right? Eventually though, like if you don't see this, it may turn into AFib anyway. But don't wait. Don't don't wait for it. Like it, you can still handle this. It's not it's more intimidating looking than anything. So um, I would advise you to actually put it in slideshow mode now. Because I know it's coming up. So, have you guys done AV blanks and EKGs yet? You feel okay? You feel good? Great. So I remember this in a different way. I'm not sure how he teaches it. But AV blanks to me are the relationships you have at home with the people right now. And I'm going to tell you what that means. So basically, when you're going out and about and, you know, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, and your wives, and your, and your, and your husbands, or both, or whatever it is, right? They understood that, don't worry about it, babe. I'm going to support you through all of this. We're going to get through this together. Don't even worry about the kids. I got you. I got us. And then, like, two weeks later, when you're, like, not home enough, they're like, so you're just going to, like, study the whole time? Yeah, that's what I said we were going to do. 
right? And like, what do you mean? Like, you said this was for us. So what starts happening? See, you're here a lot. I don't fall into that. This is your second home. No, this is your first home. You're here a lot. Some of you, and I've seen it even in my class, even sleep here, okay? And that's okay, because only when I see you sleeping, unless it's something important, I'm gonna let you sleep, because I get it. It sucks that you can sleep through this, but whatever, right? So, but here's the thing, if it's something important, I'm gonna wake your ass up, because I'm like, yo, straight up, yo, wake that guy up, or I'll just point a laser at them or something, because I, although I feel for you, we still gotta get going. So, because let's be real, sometimes when you get back home, they don't let you sleep, right? You, you, you think you're gonna go home and you're like, gonna do this, but half the time you're like chasing kids around and, and chasing your loved one around, just whatever it is. This is where AV blocks comes in. Believe it or not, right? It's gonna happen, okay? So what happens? Eventually, there's a constant separation between you two when you like go home. It doesn't change, the separation doesn't change, but it's definitely more than before. I would say if you sleep with that person in bed, about one pillow length difference. Like you know sometimes when you're really pissed, if you don't go through this, you haven't been through shit. So if you have like a pillow in the, in the between you guys, right, because normally, let's be real, like your big spoon or your little spoon, whatever it is, there's no spooning anymore. It's constantly a separation. Because when you're in the beginning of the relationship, you're always holding hands and shit like, and you're like, you're just holding each other, and it's so romantic. But it, it gets old, like eventually you're just like, okay, <laughs> right. Oh, you want me to sit next to you? In restaurants, it's a thing, it's a thing. To sit across, it's like not a thing anymore, you have to sit next to each other. It's cool, just, just do what they want, right? But eventually, it's always a constant separation. So, first degree AV block is exactly that. It's a constant separation. Where you're showing up home later than you used to. You used to have a nine to five. Now you got an eight to eight. Right? I know. <laughs> I, I just heard a moment. <laughs> and that's what it is. It's a constant separation. And you think you're gonna get through it, but you don't. Because I told you, if you do your suffering now, it's gonna get worse. So then what happens? You're supposed to come home, right? And you're supposed to come home to, even though it's a constant separation, you're still supposed to go home. I will tell you from my experience in PA school, go home. Trust me, go home. It's not worth it to go to Ringwood to celebrate. Go home, celebrate your family, trust me on that. Okay, because number two is second degree type one. What happens? You're getting home later and later and later until one day you don't show up because you're studying with your friends. <laughs> if you don't do it, you're not gonna hook up, let me tell you. Anyway, so here's the thing. It is what it is. Some of y'all already doing it. It's okay, keep it on the low. It happens, just what do you think, I'm stupid? I see this every year. I, I eventually, by, the, by March, I'll figure out which one y'all was. So, it's good. So, second degree, type one, is that you're supposed to come home at a certain time, but that separation is getting longer 
and longer until one day, hey, I'm just going to spend the night at this person's house, or I'm just going to be somewhere else. Stop. Go home. Okay? I don't even have to talk about second degree type 2, because in second degree type 2, it, it's really bad. And I don't even have to talk about it, because it's a little bit harder to explain than third degree. Okay? And I'm not going to go into the treatment for all these. I know I'm just kind of like not reading the slides, but don't worry, it makes all sense later. But this is you, right now. That constant separation. How much of a separation? Literally more than 0.20 seconds. That's how much you can't stand your ass. You, you, you're 0.2 seconds late. <laughs> That's really what it is. And it's going to be something like 0.24, 0.28, but always that. You're there, but you're really far away consistently. Well, what do you do for these patients? A lot of times, you do nothing. Watch and observe. These patients will not be unstable. Okay? If they ever ask you which one of the medications is causing this, or which one of the medications you need to remove, it's a beta blocker. Because what are you doing when you are not there that often and you're slow to get there? We're slowing the heart rate. We can't get this show started because you're coming home, right? Or you're coming home later, so I can't put the kids to sleep till you get home because they're waiting for Papa and, and Mommy and Papi. Like they're waiting for you. Be real, alright? So that's what's happening. It's constant just delay. And because of that, you cannot have them on a beta blocker. You can, if they're on a beta blocker, you have to remove them from that because it's, what does beta blocker do? It slows down your weight even more. So that'll help them with their symptoms as well. Medications, we talked about vagus stimulation, disease process. Sometimes, a lot of times, like after a heart attack, you can develop a lower first degree AD block as well. These are other causes, and like I said, treatment, there's really nothing that you do for them, okay? Um, now, this is what I'm talking about. So second degree type one, you're there, because it's a weekend. Right? Then on Tuesday you show up late, and then on Wednesday you didn't show up, and then you're back home on Thursday, and then Friday a little bit longer, then you went off for the weekend. So you're going, and that's another thing you go, it's longer, longer, and gone, right? Or you're going, going, gone, whatever you want to say. It's like that PR interval gets longer and longer till the QRS drops where it's supposed to be. Right? You supposed to be handling in there? Okay, good, you're getting it. So, second degree of type 2 though, I always like to like kind of skip over this because it's a little bit harder to explain than a third degree. Third degree, if you don't know, that's the divorce. Don't worry, it's not going to happen to you. It's just not enough time. It's not enough time. If you keep doing this, yes, it will happen. Like you, you, you got to give time back that you lost. But in third degree, notice that the QRS, that's you, just is constantly just doing whatever they want. But so do the P. The P has moved on also from your nonsense. Doing their own thing. But the important thing is, is that you're consistent in what you're doing. Whereas in second degree type 2, you are not consistent. Look at the QRSs, they're not consistent. What do I mean by that? Look at that. Here, here, but then there's missing one here. Here, here, missing another one. So it's irregular. So the QRSs are irregular in second degree type 2. In third degree, it's regular. The QRS is regular. It's a complete dissociation. There's nothing happening between the two. 
you're not going home because she took it from you. Okay, sorry, flashback. But here's the thing. <laughs> she needs in my house, trust me. Uh, so that's what you have to think about. All right, there's things that eventually you have to look at the PR interval, right? So the treatment for second degree type two and third degree, pacemaker. Especially in third degree, if they show you that, if you're looking at an EKG and they show you a third degree block, transvenous pacing, transcutaneous pacing, right away they need to be on a pacer because this is lethal. This is what we call a complete heart block. There is nothing happening here. They're gonna die. And we're not in the business of letting people die on us. Okay? So that's third degree. Does that make sense to go from like first degree to second degree type one to third degree then second degree type two? It's just easier to see a third degree. Third degree looks less severe, but it's a lot more severe. And second degree type two is in danger of going to a third degree. Okay? And that's all you need to know for that. Okay? Know the treatments for you. Second degree type one treatments are just you gotta monitor them a little bit more, remove any beta blockers. Yes. Second degree type two and third degree. And third degree for sure, you need to put them on. So if they ask you any second degree type two or third degree, pacemaker. Third degree even more so, transcutaneous, transvenous, whatever it is, pacemaker. They need it right now. Okay? And that's basically all that. So third degree symptoms are gonna be like syncope, like fatigue, tired, um, uh, lightheadedness, right? They're just not gonna feel good. They're not gonna be stable. These patients are not gonna be stable, so be mindful of that. Um, physical examination, obviously you're gonna have like a regular heart rate, antibody, there's nothing else to really know about that. Um, you guys had an OSCE today, it was on ENT, so it has like no correlation to this, so we're not gonna bring that up. How was that your first OSCE? Oh, you're chilling then, you're good. What was the first one on? Don't? Oh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> Don't kinda sucks. So, yeah, I guess so, all right, <laughs> just my response, what else? All right, so these are pace, uh, permanent pacemaker guidelines. Um, of, again, we kind of went over this as well, like if we have patients that are going to a, such a low heart rate and we gotta knock them back into place, um, and, you know, we do this also in like, what I say, the Katy Perry syndrome, six sinus syndrome, right? So you have to put them on a pacemaker, and that's basically what I was looking at. I'm not expecting you to be an electrophysiologist, but if you're that kind of nerd, go ahead, do your thing, waste your time, and look at that if you want. This is a complete heart block here. So basically what we're getting at is that it's important we break it down from the beginning, right? Look at MVP, does MVP have a QRS? Does MVP look the same? Does MVQRS look the same? Is then we start to get to the point where we start looking at the, the PR interval, right? So can you even calculate a PR interval here? There's multiple periods that show up. So then when you start seeing that, you look at, okay, well they're all the same, except now what I would look at is that, is this like an AV block, right? So let's make sure, like, all right, so if this was an AV block, well, that's a hell of a first degree, right? But there's multiple periods that just show up. And then you're like, okay, well, this is getting longer, and maybe that one, but there's no drop. It's, QRSs are consistent. And that immediately gives us third degree, right? That immediately, when the QRSs are consistent, and you just draw like a piece of paper and march it out. If the QRSs are consistent and the P's don't look like they're supposed to be where they are, third degree, put that person in a pacemaker, okay? 
right? So here, this is a little bit um, difficult to look at because what they did to you was give you one of these stupid looking EKGs to just throw you off a little bit. But know what you're looking at, know where we're at. Know which one is lead one, two, and three, AVR, AVL, AVF. I just, without looking at this, I could tell you what an EKG looks like, right? And it's not because I'm smart, it's because I do this all the time. You can get to this level, you can surpass this level if you do this a lot, right? And this video I just did, right? Didn't I say that? Look, I win the precordial leads, okay? Now, at the end of the day, the way we go to the EKG this way, these are just angles, but the timing is the same. This is still, you know, three seconds here, six seconds here, nine seconds here, 12 seconds there. Don't be confused by that. This is not the first three seconds, the first three seconds you and the first three seconds you. No, it's the same thing happening. We're just looking at that at a different angle. So this sucks to look at, right? But the best lead to look at we know is lead two, right? But sometimes they mess with you because they're bullies like that, right? And we're gonna get ready for them. Lead two, this is still the same time. But what they're showing you is that, oh, that's a, pretty wide QRS, and then if you studied STEMIs, you're like, shoot, that might be a STEMI. And animals does look like a STEMI, right? But I don't stay focused, though. Look at the P waves. Remember the P waves? This one gets longer and longer, but nothing drops, right? Here's another P wave here. This is a difficult EKG to take a look at if you're just a student. But that's okay. You're not training to be a student. I already told you about that, right? Like, yeah, but we're in medicine, we're a student for life. No, 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 this, students don't make money, okay? Atrophy. So, have you guys gone away this in pharmacology at all? So, in cardiology, all you really need to know is that this is gonna increase your heart rate. So, when you have somebody that's down, and this is one of the ACLS medications as well, so when you have somebody in a bradycardic emergency, so it's somebody that's gonna be syncopying, or, that's not a word, syncopizing, Having a syncopal episode, um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, you know, that's who you're going to go after, right? This is an anticholinergic drug as well, so be careful of that. I know you probably haven't gone over that. When somebody has an anticholinergic response, you need to get fecal stigma and all that. Don't worry about that. We're going to talk about that in emergency medicine, okay? So, again, know what this medication does. If you're struggling with this in pharmacology, just pick up this slide. It hasn't kind of narrowed down everything that you need to know in pharmacology. All right, you don't need to know this. PVCs, we, we went over this a little bit the last time, right? And what PVCs are supposed to look like. Did we go over this? There's three ways to break down a premature contraction, right? There's PVCs, PACs, and PJCs. Did we go over that at all? All right, what's the difference between a PVC and a PJC and a PAC? What's the difference? What are we looking for? The YQRS. It's wide and bizarre. It's the person who doesn't belong in the family picture, remember? Right? That's what a PVC is. And so we're looking at this, and you look at this, everything looks cool and normal, but then like, what are you doing here? That's what a PVC is. But then, we take it to the next level. We want to know how often does it occur, right? We want to know if it's groupless, because we learned the last time that if three of them happen in a row, that could be a ventricular tachycardia or a superventricular tachycardia, right? That's important for us to know. So this is something called a bigeminal PVC. What does that mean? That means every other beat is a premature ventricular contraction. Okay? Don't get confused with that. Sometimes people get confused with that. So one and two makes it by, right? One and two by one and two. That's it. The second beat 
is when that beat goes off. Not one, two, and then the beat goes off because it's after two beats. No, it's the second beat that it lands on is what gives it the name bigeminal. So what happens if it's every third beat? It's a trigeminal. Hey, look at you guys. Amazing. And some of you are confused because you're like, but that has nothing to do with the trigeminal. No, I don't. Relax. We just come up with these words and we run out of them, so we use them again to throw you off even more. You're going to make a lot of money, I promise. Trust me. And then multifocal, we don't even know the money waiting for you. So, multifocal PVCs. What do we talk about that? That means it's coming from different parts of the heart. Now that all those QLSs that look wide and bizarre and funny looking, they don't look the same. Right? There's multiple people at your party now that don't look like they should be there, but it's cool. Just have a great time. Right? So now, this is what it's supposed to look like because it's narrow. Right? Everybody else looks the same except you two. Now, can you call this like a bigeminal? Technically, you can, but it's multifocal more than anything. You can call it multifocal bigeminal PVCs, but let's just like leave it like that. So when do we worry about it? Runs up consecutive, specifically three plus, right? When else do we worry about it? Multifocal PVCs, like why are different parts of the ventricle contracting at different times? That's a little worrisome. And most of these people are just going to end up with a uh, you know a electrophysiology study, all right? Um, keep going. We're good. We're fine. Okay, this is how you grade PVCs, but you're probably never going to need to know that for your life or the board, so we're going to move on. Uh, the treatment, no more ejection fraction, no treatment, or if you want, you can put them on a beta blocker. Okay? If it's affecting the ejection fraction, how are you going to find out the ejection fraction? It would be like a cardiogram, right? That's simple. And we already know what an ejection fraction is, right? That's like the first day of PA school almost, right? And it's 55 to 65, we already went over that. Okay, good. Uh, VTAC, we went over this a little bit. Uh, most of them are usually going to be like caused by a heart attack anyway, but if somebody comes in with VTAC, you have to be ready. The first thing you have to make sure is in any time that you're dealing with like ACLS or any sort of dysrhythmia, is the patient stable? And I kind of went over that with you a little bit, right? What makes a patient unstable? Alternative status, hypotension, and chest pain, just like three of like another few things that are supposed to be there. So keep that in mind. This is the attack, okay? Remember the other things that you want to try is like do like your vasovagal maneuvers, like can cough, can you bear down, blow into the syringe of air. These are important things. Because we want to try to do non-medicinal approaches in the beginning first. What do you think the symptoms are going to be? Palpitations, lightheadedness, I don't feel good, right? Chest pain, dyspnea, anxiety, syncope, all what you thought they were going to have. That's another thing I want to teach you guys. So don't be afraid to say an answer. Be afraid of the questions you ask. Because so, I know people ask, like, this happened, I'm going to tell you a story later before you go on break. But what I think about stupid questions, all right? So, but answers are not stupid, believe it or not. Because that lets me know what you're thinking. When you ask a question that's stupid, then I'm like, you're not thinking. Right? But when you answer something, I know where you're going with it. I know what you're thinking. I can construct that. I'm like, okay, that's what you're thinking, but think about this way. So when you answer something, and if, even if you think it's wrong, answer it. Because it's, that's how we learn as humans. We usually learn how to get to a particular way. 
oh, because I went this way and I ended up in the ghetto, so I'm just not going to go that way anymore. But you had to end up in the ghetto to learn that, right? So just keep that in mind. When I ask you a question, if that's what you think it is, give it to me. It's my job to slap you back and say, no, that's not what it is. Not physically, but whatever, right? Here's our VTAC patient here. Now, if you look at this, you're like, uh-oh, what do I do? Go to the basics. You always have to understand, what does the patient look like? Because if they look okay, relax a little bit, not too much, but relax a little bit, okay guys, so they're stable. We can't shock somebody stable, right? So let's give them some medication. And we already learned about medications that slow them down, right? The calcium channel blockers and things like that, and, and then eventually you bring them down. If you can't work, then you gotta give them an antiretin like amiodarone. And that takes time to learn, but relax, take it easy. Now, if the patient is dying and they're in this rhythm, that's even easier. Because I already told you, if they're not stable, shock them. Right? So don't get intimidated by this. Treat the patient. Learn that. Learn that. Look at what you think is normal. If it don't feel right, it's probably not right. Do what you do what you gotta do with it, okay? Uh, what else? VTAC can turn into VFib, which like I said, that's the uh, last like uh, rhythm that you see before you head out of like this life. There is no tunnel at the end, it is probably God or something else that you believe in, whatever it is, but it's out. It's over, and if we don't shock you out of this, it's over. So V-fib, automatically you can think D-fib. There's no checking poles, there's no stable, unstable, they're not stable, they're out, okay? Uh, this is what to do post-conversion, all right? Um, you do have to realize things that can cause VTAC. How did we end up here, right? And there's something we learn later on when we do um, you know, ACLS, the HMTs and things like that, all right? And at the end of the day, everybody goes to the electrophysiology and, and, and they'll take care of them. These are polymorphic VTAC, meaning that it's coming from different places. This is what VTAC looks like. This is a YQS VTAC. So again, do not get intimidated by this. We are not here to get intimidated. This looks fancy, but we dance with fancy, okay? This is somebody dying right in front of your eyes. Right, look at that. 6.02 a.m., chilling, maybe a a little bit. Goes into VTAC, continues into VTAC, starts to turn into VFib, and over the hills they go. That's it. That's how people die. And because we're just kind of like watching them. Now you're thinking, how did you, why did we let somebody die like that? It's probably somebody like DNR, so don't worry, relax. Take it easy. I didn't tell you the age of this patient, I didn't tell you what else was going on, okay? So, you, have you guys gone away with the Gattis sign and Joseph and sign at all? The Gattis, you probably went over. Joseph is probably not, but the Gattis, I'm not going to get in on it with you. You're going to do it in, in EKG, so I'm not going to go with that with you. All right. Uh, that's what they look like. Okay. Torsades de Pontes. I think we talked about this. I'm sure I mispronounced that, right? So, uh, did we talk about Torsades at all? That it looks like the sine wave? Should be a good. That's Torsades. Big thing on this though, the treatment is iron magnesium, and we emphasize this so much that you should probably know this now. The treatment for torsades is iron magnesium. You treat the sores. Why do they get there in the first place, right? You do need to cardiovert them, they need pacing. These patients are not going to be stable. Um, they may have a pulse, um, but eventually you need to knock them out of it. Think about the cause, what got them there? If we have to give them iron magnesium, what do you think one of the cause could be? Hypermagnesium, right? Simple. 
It's, it's that simple, I promise you. It does get that simple sometimes. And this you might not see so much, but look at when you look at the precordial leads. It's that twisting and turning the points, which is literally a definition of Tersav de Pontes, all right? Am I saying that right? I feel like I'm saying that wrong. Nobody French here? Huh? I love that. Perfect. Say loud, proud. The point. So I just made a point test, like, this is just be me. Right, all right, awesome. Thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> Long QT, we talked about this, right? When you've, with great power comes great responsibility, right? So again, medications that can cause this, we already know about this. I think I went over the medications as well. You have to understand that, that that happens as well. Um, and then eventually this could also be genetic. So if you find this on one of your patients, you do have to test their family members as well so that we don't throw them into it as well. Um, that's the acquired lung QT, Bugatta syndrome. Take a picture of that. That might be something that might interest you a little bit later on as well. Not for me though, like, you're good. That's gross. All right, so, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. I don't even know how to teach you that. Just forget it. Um, so, V-fib, um, again, we already talked about this. This is uh, a, a, just V-fib, it's D-fib. There's nothing else to know about it. Um, this does get uh, some fun to work up because although we get them out of V-fib from a defibrillator, uh, the studies will show you like in 48 hours they're gonna die anyway. So, does that mean you give up? No. Your job sometimes is just to buy time. Okay, so just realize that. And I know I come up here and sometimes I sound like a penis head because you're like, where are your feelings? Um, you can't have them. I do have feelings, I promise. Believe it or not, I, I have a soul. But there's times where I can't because I have to walk into the next room and make sure they don't die like the one I just walked out of. So it gets weird. That's like an ER thing though. So like, this is why I don't like doing like family medicine because I want to see you again. Like just do more things here, what else? Ah, okay, so going to like, we're mode here. Actually, we'll do that right after the break and then we're done. Um, my point on asking stupid questions. I had a scribe that worked with me, they're fired now, of course, but um, this was like a year ago, and I'm trying to tell this guy, and I think he was more interested in learning how medicine works, and that's not what I'm there for. You're here to, like, in the beginning, learn how to scribe. This is not physician assistant assistant program. Like, this is, you're my scribe. Then when you become my scribe, yeah, I go into super teaching mode and tell you, hey, before you went to PA school, before you went to med school, you should know this, da 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 da, so that when you get here, you're brilliant. Who else was a scribe I worked with here? One, two? I only could do that once, maybe. Right, so you're supposed to be brilliant. Great, turn the head is not comforting. All right, so at the end of the day, this person asks me a question and I, I didn't, understand the question because it was just like such a stupid question and like it was something about like oh is it important to document the sugars on this diabetic patient uh, you see you see it's not me it, like you, well, duh, right so then I was like uh, yeah I'm gonna let your trainer handle that one because you're training with somebody right and the guy that's training was like yeah, don't, don't ask those questions to Abdul. Come over here. Right? So, and I was like, I'm just saying that. And he's like, wait, but like, I thought I'm supposed to ask you things when I don't know something. And I was like, yeah, I just feel like you should know that. But don't worry about it. Just focus on scribing, and you're good. All right? He's like, <laughs> he goes, he says, but I thought there's no such thing as a stupid question. And I was like, 
that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I, it just got like, like Asper Dill came out a little bit, and I was like, there's no, there's no, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Of course there's such thing as a stupid question. That was one of them. And so he's like, oh, sorry, like I just, I'm like, look dude, here's the thing. There is such thing as a stupid question, okay? But if I ask you a question, there's no such thing as a stupid answer, right? Unless you're just being stupid. But like, understand what you're asking, because if you're asking something, sometimes I feel like you're compensating for something. Like asking a question to show me you know something when I know you don't know shit, right? So answer my questions as stupid as you want. So then I could say, that was stupid, this is the right answer, right? And I'm sorry if it offends you, I get paid either way, <laughs> right? So if you ask a question, just think about it a little bit. And then this, I feel like I've discouraged everybody to ask me a question now. But process the question through yourself. Like if I was asking me as a PA this question, maybe I should look it up myself first. You have this powerful tool, I'm not sure if you guys know this. Google, see, some of you know of her, right? Google a little bit. And then ask me like, hey, I looked this up. What do you think about it? That's how you ask a stupid question. It's still stupid though. Uh, take a break. And we'll see you at four o'clock. And we're gonna do some quizzing up here. And some of these I use on the exam, so make sure you pay attention. No one will ask me a question now, I know it. <laughs> five seconds, live in 45 seconds. <laughs> Lights down, yeah. The theater lights. We're good. <laughs> All right, okay. 20 seconds. I for nothing. All right, so let's do this. Let's break it down. So, um, what, I like this question a lot. So hopefully you're in the rest. That's a very cute sneeze. Uh, so. I like to ask this question because um, you're always looking for something wrong in a question, okay? Get out of that mindset. It's okay to be normal. Say that to yourself right now. It's okay to be normal. I say this because you're all abnormal, right? So get to that point. So again, if you're in um, slideshow mode, this is going to help out much more. If not, then you're cheating and you can see the answer. Okay, so let's break it down. When we're asking this, you know, which of the following rhythm is represented below? We really ask you one question. We're always asking you five questions in one question. I want to know what is this and why is it not the other four things? And that's the habit that you should develop now. That's how you accidentally pick the wrong one, right? Because that's what's going to happen in life. Why is this myocarditis and not pericarditis, which both are pretty equal, right? Or why is it pericarditis and not endocarditis, right? So a lot of things look the same, it's up to you to figure out the differences. So let's break this one down. Um, so basically it's asking me, okay, what is this strip? It's hard to tell you um, a rhythm on this or a weight on this, right? But if we were here, we would have to use that 300 method, right? So 300, 150, 100, 
75 and just a little bit more than 60. So it's not dirty, believe it or not. This is a little bit more than 60 beats per minute because 60 would have been this next box right there. I'm sorry about the Parkinson's, here you go. Now, okay, so there's something that's in there. There's a word that keeps coming up, sinus. What does sinus mean? Sinus means that there's a P wave. Do you see a P wave? All right. That's not true for AFib or a flutter, right? We wouldn't really see a P wave, right? So that automatically eliminates D and E. But that's how you're supposed to answer a question, not just like, it's this, it's that. No. Look at why it's not the other things, because you will miss something. This is like basic stuff. Don't go into like, uh, sometimes, and I know some professors teach this also, don't go into the, well, read the end of the question first, so you know what they're asking you, or read the answers first, and then you know what they're asking you. No. Go back to fourth grade when you're taking the FCAT, and they tell you, read the whole question, and if you don't know what you're reading, read it twice, and read every single answer choice. Okay, some of you are too young to know what the FCAT is. The FSA, do you remember that? SATs, ACTs. Okay, good. Some of you still don't know what you're doing. Back in the day, we used to paper write like questions up to 10 years ago. So that's what we're talking about. Go back to the basic. Read the whole question. Look at the picture, look at it again, and look at every single answer choice and tell me why it is or why it is not what is presented here. Can this be sinus? Of course it can be sinus. There's a P wave. Can it be tachycardic? Definitely not. This does not look tachycardic. If I'm between two things, it'd probably be sinus baby and normal sinus rhythm. Right? I totally just shot myself in the foot there right now. <laughs> Could have sworn that was like normal sinus baby. We're gonna move on. I'm gonna hold on. <laughs> that was so embarrassing. <laughs> Alright. But uh, honestly, that's normal sinus rhythm. We'll talk like that's normal sinus rhythm. And why are you giving me like a four second strip? That made no sense. I don't know why you do that. Oh, it's 50, yeah, it's 50, yeah. But like 59, so that's not fair. So we're gonna move on to the next one. So I told you the question, yes. I, that's what I, no, I, there's nothing wrong with this patient, I agree with you, but I told you, this thing is a stupid question, just stupid answers that I gave you, and that was a stupid answer. So thank you, I appreciate you signing up for me, thank you. We'll move on. Couldn't swear that was normal science rhythm. But do you see what just happened? That is what we call humility, all right? Humbleness, like, I'm gonna take the L on that one, all right? But it happens, it happens. I could have messed this up. Um, I'm very embarrassed, I'm going to be honest, but we'll, we'll figure it out. That one, that's my ride home now. Actually, I'm not even going home. I'm going to go to a restaurant after this anyway, so I'm going to look at myself and like, Sam's baby, bro. That was, uh... Still get paid. We're good. We're still get paid. <laughs> still moving on. They didn't die. We're good. All right, so let's read this question. So 68-year-old woman on digoxin presents complaining of lethargy. Her EKG reveals which of the following dysrhythmias. So that's definitely not, I'm gonna get this one, I promise. That's definitely not normal sinus rhythm, right? Okay, it's not sinus baby, it's not sinus tacky. It's definitely not sinus baby this time for sure. Okay, but I learned from my mistake, you see? Um, so it could be one of the two things. When I told you like that sawtooth pattern look, this looks pretty much like that. God, I hope this is it. All right, good. A flutter, okay? And the treatment is gonna be the same thing, okay? See, some of us can mess this up too. All right, now, what do we see here? 
AFib, right? But look what you're doing. You jump into AFib immediately. Take your time. Assess the whole thing. Why AFib? Why not eighth letter? Why not? So I get it. I know you're scared, but this is not rainbow. Relax. Okay? I know you're like all hopped up on the Massimini stuff. I get it. It's very contagious. I still have a lot of things you used to say just cross my mind sometimes. Like, please, guys, don't make me change. Or another one who does is join the system. And what's another one that he says? This is a bunch of them. Uh, kiss yourself. Love yourself, please. Let me in, please. Exactly. Okay? And please, guys, we need this. We need this. He is a legend here, by the way. Alright? Um, so that's it. Good job. But tell me, is this a rapid ventricular response, controlled ventricular response, slow ventricular response? Controlled. It's at that 110. Number 110 is controlled still. All right. All right. What do we see here? Let's. I might have to break this down with you. Oh, okay. I got it. What do we got? This is a little bit difficult. You might want to take a look at your laptop first. I think I know what it is. I'm no longer going to jump on my answer anymore. What do you see? What do you see? What's your name? Yes. What is it? Diana. Okay. Is it Diana or Diana? Diana. Okay. So I'm not going to go to the origin of my name. Pretty sure it's Cuban. All right. No offense, but I'm surprised there's no like Danielis or something like that. Okay, we always end up with an S. It's cool. What do you see? What do you see? SVT. You see SVT. Why? You do not see it anymore. Good, it disappeared. Excellent. What do you see? You think it's sinus tacky. When you say you see sinus, why do you call it sinus? Do you see AP? Is it no belief? What do you see? Sorry, I'm not going to point a laser at you. Can, let me just, one second. I want to make sure I'm right. Give me one second. Yes, I knew it. Okay. Why? Look, no, but look. Just, do you guys remember the Lion King? You remember when he's like telling older Simba, look at the water? And then he says, look harder. That's this moment right now. You know you see a P wave, right? You see a T wave too. But do you see just one P wave? How many do you see? A lot. How many? Two for every QRS. That's two too many. And we know that when the P wave comes up that often, that's the atrium, right? This is why, you see, you didn't jump on this one, did you? Except for you, that's okay, no worries, that happens. You jumped off there real quick, I love it. So, it's not, I mean, it's not normal sinus rhythm because, again, you see more than one P wave, right? Remember, go back to the basics, go back to the basics. Do you see a P wave? 
does every P wave have a QRS? No. There's a couple of P waves. There's multiple. Look at this. So watch. This is this is not an easy one. Don't freak out. This is not an easy one. They're breaking down. This is like Monday morning quarterback for those of you know what that is. All right. T wave, right? So let's not even confuse ourselves. Let's start with one that we know. P wave, P wave, bump, bump, QRS. T wave. That repolarization is much bigger than a P wave contraction, right? Bump, 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 right here. Bump and a bump and a bump and a bump. Don't ignore it. It keeps happening. See that? But it's happening too much. The littlest thing. See that? The littlest thing. It's... If there's a jump from the isoelectric line, which you know what the isoelectric line is, right? This line that it's supposed to follow, there's something happening, and the atrium is contracting. The atrium is going like this. It better not be emergency, we're good. If it's emergency, you can go, it's cool. Look, it's happening like this. We know lub dub, right? Lub dub, right? So this is what's happening. This is not normal. Right? Right? This is weird. You're not supposed to do that. That's like little wings are. We don't do that, okay? This is not normal, okay? So atrial tachycardia. It's not only SVT though, right? It's technically SVT because it's coming above. So when you said SVT, I wanted you to say atrial tachycardia or SVT. That's all that means. SVT just means that tachycardia is coming before or above the, the ventricle. That's all it is, okay? Let's do it again. What do we got happening here? Okay, I think I got it this time. <laughs> Normal sinus rhythm. Why is it not AFib? It's regular, right? Automatically rules that out because AFib is irregular, irregular. Get to this habit for all your questions. Trust me, you're going to thank me. It's gonna be weird, but like during exam, but not like this, but like now this, I guess. You're like, all right. And then you know, just you realize, okay, I gotta look at everything. Okay, it's normal sinus rhythm. All right, this is an awesome one. Why is it not normal sinus rhythm? No P waves. Okay, is there a premature atrial contraction here? There's no P wave to tell you that. Right? It's not sinus because I don't see a P wave. I don't see a P wave. It cannot be sinus, so it's junctional. And junctional, I know, you're like, isn't this a P wave though? That's a Q wave. The Q is the first negative deflection off the QRS, or off the isoelectric line. Stay focused, okay? This is intense. It's hard to see this, but it's normal sinus rhythm. All right, what do we got going on here? Don't get confused here. Don't get confused. This is just somebody moving during an EKG. Don't get confused. But what's happening here? Those of you that are not doing this slideshow, please do not have any spoiler alerts for us. What's happening? Look at the whole EKG. What do you think? It's different when there's no answer choices, right? And the only choice this person has is you. Pressure. Pressure. What do you see? Be careful. Huh? What about him? 
they're supposed to. What's going on? Third degree heart block. Very good. Why? Alright. This is you at the end of PA school. Alright? Finally divorced, and now you can go and get a hot supercar and look at this. But the QRS stay normal. What's the treatment? Pacemaker. That's it. Okay? Alright, uh, what's happening here? Huh? I knew I knew somebody would say it. It's not her sides. Super ventricular Paroxysmal can that word P paroxysmal means that it comes and goes. You can't tell that by this answer. Right? They need more information to give to you. Alright? Alright. Ms. Ball is a 93-year-old female who presents to the ER complaining of indigestion and shortness of breath for the past two hours. As you work up your patient, you perform an EKG with the following results. Immediately you look at this, you're like, dang, this sounds like an attending case. Right? Alright, what is the rhythm? Did you get a chance to take a look at it? You'll go back. No worries, I know, it's okay. What do you think you see? Okay, I got it. I know what's happening. Ready? I'm going to do it a little bit more time. You look like you're still looking at it. You're pointing to your friends. Everybody else good. And the patient is dead. Okay, so we're going to move on. So, sinus bradycardia. What is your next symptom? What is the next step? Stick to it. You, got, you know what you got caught up in? The ST depressions and elevations. Right? You forgot the basic. Is there a P wave? Is there a QRS? What's the heart rate? Is the rhythm normal? Then you look at the ST segment. You, the first thing you do is look at, whoa, what that? Whoa, oh, that's depressions. Okay. But it's also Brady. Right? So now, because that's important, because we need to know what we're going to do. I also see the depressions, and I think this might still be a non-ST elevated, maybe an ST elevated, elevated OMI in the like septal leads, maybe. Let's keep going. We talked about morning already with you guys, yes? Morphine, oxygen, nitro, aspirin, IDH, heparin. Yes? I think Professor Hancock goes over that with you guys. He's a legend in the game, by the way. All right. You don't need to know that you're good. All right. Mr. Rubin is a 70-year-old, has been admitted to the cardiac floor after an episode of lightheadedness and syncope. Upon admission, we order an EKG with the following results. Ho oh, ho. What is this? Go to the basic first and work it up. What happened to him? The answer is there, by the way. What happened to him? And he's dead. Okay, so did you see the PVC? Did you see it? Where was it? Bam. 
this one does not belong. Right? It's almost a PJC, I think, if any, I could argue that. Alright? I-axis, right? This is symptomatic bradycardia, by the way. Right? Because he's syncopized. He passed out from this, so we're going to need to get IV-axis, oxygen, IV atropine, of course, and then we need to put the patient on a pacemaker. Helps you kind of break this down a little bit more, right? Okay. Ms. Keen, 55-year-old female, who presents to the ER with complaints of palpitations while watching a scary movie, but following as a result of her EKG. What do you think? Okay, I got it. Love this dedication, this silence, this this concentration. She'll make it, I promise. This one I'll be leaving this up here for a little bit longer for you guys. Did you see it? Are there any P waves? Is the rhythm irregular? How irregular irregular is it? Look at that. What kind of response is this? It gives you the heart rate. What kind of response is this? If this is a fib. More than 110 beats per minute, a rapid ventricular response. Would I do anything to this lady? Probably not, I'm gonna be honest. I'm sure they're gonna give her something. Need to control the rate, eh. Cast some channel blocker. I wouldn't go like more than 10 milligrams on this lady. Like, you'll be fine. More is needed, right? Anticoagulants, we have about 48 hours to determine that, right? Um, are we going to cardiovert her out of this? Because she was just watching a scary movie. Everything was fine. Right? Before we cardiovert her, what do we need to check for? Her echo, right? To make sure there's no blood clot. Okay? I think this is the last case. Um, Mr. Marks is an 83-year-old male who is scheduled for hip surgery tomorrow. During your pre-op evaluation, you obtain the following EKG. It's a little bit difficult too. I haven't probably gone over this, but inverted T waves is not a good sign either. It's a sign of ischemia as well. It's very important also to obtain the old EKG on a patient too. Very important. Because we need to see if this is new. Alright. Normal sinus rhythm. I didn't like his T waves. They don't care about what I think. Continue your pre-op workup for his hip surgery. And that's it. Can we switch over to... Uh, I'm going to give you... So just, uh, but then we're going to go all the way to like 30 in the next one. Where, why can't we return? So 425, and then is it 423? And then we come back at 430, and then, uh, all right, we're like five minutes out, we're good. I was lying, I will give you a break at 525. So first of all, I asked you if you were doing any murmurs. You guys heard any? Are you, aren't you doing murmurs in the lab? Oh, she thinks you already did them. All right, cool. <laughs> She's like, of course. We, yeah. Oh, you haven't listened to the, the Harvey thing? Okay, all right. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It's good. You'll learn. Ish. Um, 
Okay. Uh, sometimes it's like you just gotta put it back and then let it come out. Um, okay. So I'm gonna be again. I, I think you guys kind of get the gist of how I teach now, right? Like I'm not really a slide guy. Like I'll I'll do it and turns more into like a TED talk sometimes. I think, which is fine. I'm okay with that. But like really, um, you know. I, I want to teach you what you need to know, right? I, I don't like reading off the slides. Um, so we're going to start with this question, okay? Um, how long would you treat a rheumatic fever patient that has developed carditis? And I know none of you know the answer to this. So most, who knows the answer to this without looking in the non-slideshow version of this? Good. That's what we're here for. Here to learn. Lifetime. If they develop carditis from it. Don't worry, we're going to pick up on this a little bit later. So this is anatomy 101. You, if you don't know how the blood flows through your body by now, you're in the wrong program. Okay? If you don't know it, and, I, and you heard this, and you feel like you're in the wrong program, you need to brush up on that like now. Like I don't even mind you looking this up right now while I'm teaching this, because if you don't know this, you're going to struggle in life. Okay, so you have to know that the blood comes to the right atrium from the superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava, and then it goes through the first valve to the right atrium, and then it goes to the first valve, which is the tricuspid valve, right? Because you try before you buy. If you guys, you know, little things that I do there. So tricuspid valve then goes into the right ventricle, and then it goes into what? pulmonary artery. I love that you guys did that together. And so then that goes to the lungs to get blood to get oxygenated, right? And then it gets returned back to the heart through the what? Pulmonary veins, the right and left superior and inferior pulmonary veins into the left atrium and then goes down the bicuspid valve into the left ventricle to the order all over the place. Okay? You should know that that's not advanced, what I just did there right now. Uh, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but my son knows that. He's in the fourth grade, okay? So, just so you know, if he's like, oh, I finally got it, so did my son. Okay? Just always think about my kid, if you think you're smart. He's a little bit smarter than you. <laughs> so just get to that point, okay? It's very important that you understand that. Because when you understand just anatomically what's happening, then you can understand physiologically what can go wrong. That, that's going to make sense to you a little bit later. And that's exactly what all of this is really talking about. I did all that for you in like one slide. We already talked about the ejection fraction and what the blood volume is, right? At any given minute, there's about five liters running through your body. And that's important because eventually you're going to figure out if you get into like emergency settings or like OBGYN or whatever it is, general surgery, trauma, any, you know, kind of, I don't think get a feel of how many trauma PAs that they want to go into trauma or think about it, one, two, three, good, you're going to have more life, excellent, good, cardiothoracic PAs, a lot of good cardiothoracic PAs, one, very good, two, also no life, very good, um, ER PAs, that's where we are, right, okay, uh, good, yeah, because it's a better life, believe it or not, and then there's, um, you know, like, derm, Good, like, well, good, good job, Botox, got it. Um, and then there's like all these other specialties, right? But 
no matter what specialty you go into, you have to know these basic things because you still know, need to know how the heart perfuses the rest of the body, even in, in Botox, I mean dermatology, like how these things work, right? So this is really still important. By the way, I talk a lot about Botox, but I definitely know how to do it because it makes a lot of money, just so you know you should get into that too. So, um, now I know you guys, now that I say that, you're like, this guy talks a lot about money. Um, and I know something like, money's not everything. But I think I told you this already, right? The great poet, an American poet said once, people with no money say money and everything. Drake, 2007, I told you that. <laughs> so if you're saying money and everything, because you really got it. But anyway, so here's the thing. So, and it's true though, because at the end of the day, you gotta pay people back, right? Some of you are on loans, right? You, you know the guys, right? Wells Fargo, you know, you know Discover, Except when you discover what your payment's gonna look like after the six months that you're not to pay it back, and then it's a really big payment. Like, you know, Sally Mae, that's not somebody's aunt that makes cookies, she wants her money back. So, like, just keep that in mind. Uh, you need money. <laughs> so, ejection fraction. I told you there's no transitions in my lectures. So, you already kind of know about this. This is when the left ventricle squeezes whatever it needs to out and in about into the aorta, so that's really important, okay? No one hardens a perfect pump. That basically just means that we can't eject out 100%, right? That makes no sense. You, you die, there's nothing. There's some sort of perfusion that needs to happen, okay? So what happens with disease of the valves, you could either have stenosis or regurgitation. Stenosis just means what we know, it's narrowing, right? Narrowing in the heart or regurgitation. What does regurgitation mean? It just goes right back up. It's a floppy valve, right? So where there's any sort of anatomical you know, condition, you have to know what are the things that can go wrong. That's important, and then what do you do about that? Common causes could be congenital, right? Well, like we were talking about VSD, um, you know, PDA, all these things we're gonna talk about, okay? And I'm gonna teach you how to break down each one of these numbers. This is like my specialty in what I do when I teach people this. I've been teaching this for like eight years, and I'm, I'm sometimes I show off, but here's the thing, most of the times, People get it after this, but you gotta listen. So this is one of those I wouldn't fall asleep on. So, remember that there are CT scans and labs and all these other great tools and echocardiograms and, and whatever you want. But the greatest tool that you'll ever use are your fingers, like your hands to palpate, and that thing that they put around your neck. No, not your bling, your stethoscope. Okay, that's a very important tool. Because imagine knowing what a heart number is before you find it on the echocardiogram. We do blood work and imaging to prove and to confirm what we already know, right? That's important. So it's important to auscultate your memories. It's important to know when to look or where to look for different memories as well. Like if you're looking here, you're listening here, that's your aortic valve. Right? Then pulmonic, then tricuspid, and mitral valve. Now, you guys know, right, all physicians take money. You guys know that, right? Or all physicians enjoy taking money because of the herbs node. I'm going to let you know. You guys didn't know that? Right? So now you know. All physicians take money. So, right upper sternal border, second intercostal space, aorta, all. Then left sternal border, second intercostal space, physicians, pulmonary. Can I be real with you? you guys know about herbs, please? Have you ever heard about that before PA school? No. You'll never use it. <laughs> it. 
I don't know why it's there. Like, I've never been like, well, there's a memory in the herbs like area. Like, what? I don't even call it. So learn it now, and then throw it out. Because you will never use it. Like, there's no test question I've ever gotten in the 12 years. I have taken the pants. I have taken the pen read. I have taken the CAQ twice. Yeah, I didn't pass the first time. <laughs> no, hang on. The reason I didn't pass the first time was because I legit didn't study for it. I thought, I was like, eh, whatever. See, humility, okay? I also know that I didn't fail by a lot either, okay? But I still failed, right? But it was going through a lot of crap. But then the second time, I knocked it out of the water because, a water? I don't know, whatever. Like, I knocked it out of the park, right? So, um, you have to understand that I see questions. I never in my life has anybody ever asked me, it's heard in the herbs place. Is that what, it, I don't even know what, why? Herbs point, that's what it's called. Like, who cares? Like, it doesn't, it's not a thing, okay? Unless you go into cardiology, and I'm sure you use it for something. But I even, oh, by the way, I did cardiology for like eight months. Never did I ever document herbs point. Negative? I don't, I don't even know what you write for that. So, aortic, pulmonic, tricuspid, and mitral valve. And the mitral valve is in the apex. Very important. Location, location, location is very important when we're studying our, our murmurs and where each valve is. The carotid upstroke evaluation is something that comes up often, especially when you think about like heart failures and things like that. I only really ask it a lot on the, on the, in the course. But it is something that will come up in your clinical year when you take Harvey course, the Harvey course at University of Miami. And you'll see, by the way, I, to this day, um, this has been recorded? Okay, never mind then. Mm. Alright. To this day, what are we going to do, fire me? Anyway, to this day, nice. <laughs> it's that time of the year too, I love this, like Harry Potter season. Um, so, to this day, I will stand here in front of you. If you think anything of me, even if you think I'm a dumbass, if you think anything of me, I will tell you, Miami-Dade College makes the best PAs. I will stand by that. And I'm not just saying because I teach here, because I teach around the country. I could tell you Miami-Dade College. You may not know it, but you will know it when you go to Harvey, when you go to clinical rotations, and you play ball, right? You play ball before, or any, any sport you play. And you know sometimes you just show up and you're like, ha, let's dance. Because you know you are about to rock this house right now. You know it's easy because you're like six for seven, but here's the thing. When I show up to a game like at LA Fitness or La Fitness, you just, you just basically know this is my house. It's going to be a long week for you, right? How do I, I'm telling you, because in Harvey, you're sitting with no other PA students. You're sitting with medical students from Nova, from around the country, around the world. They come to do this rotation. So that's one thing that is given to you. So trust me, you're in the right program. Because it's cheap as hell too, first of all, by the way. Like, but also, you're going to realize when you're in clinical rotations, you are elite. Trust me. Because I get these students from... FIE, Barry, this and that. But one thing that you'll notice, you're going to be prime. I'm telling you, you're going to be first round draft picks every time, okay? Uh, I have only hired PAs from Miami Dade College. 
I haven't hired them from before I lied to you. None of the PAs I've hired are from any other college. Uh, where I work now, last place I definitely, like I was at Barry, but he's like my best friend, so that doesn't count. So, so I'm not April in place evaluation, hard Peterson's, all these things you can learn. And, and when you take Harvey, not the Harvey you're gonna do like here, that's like a dummy, they donated to us. I don't know if it's donated, we might have bought it like, like wholesale or something. But that's not important. The point is that that's one of the things that you get to do and you learn this carotid upstrokes and apical um, impulses and how the point of maximum impulse changes. And it's going to make so much more sense to you at that moment. So we're not going to even talk about it till you get there. All right? So again, valid disease, again, you could just, by listening to them, know exactly what's happening to the heart. And then you confirm it with the echocardiogram and with the Doppler. Uh, if you don't know what a Doppler is, it's not the same you see on NBC6 for like, like with the weather. But it kind of is, because it kind of shows like change in velocity and based on the blue and the red that you see. Any ultrasonographers here? Ultrasonographists, sonographists, see? Okay. What's your real name, sonographist or ultrasonographist? Sonographer. I said it wrong two times, thank you. So, right, but so, so you get the doctor to see the flow of blood and things like that, right? So that's kind of like what we do here because that can help us determine the regurgitation and what's happening, what's the ejection fraction in these patients. It's really important. But you're not doing it to look for something. You're doing it to confirm what you already know, right? And sometimes, like, you just find things on the echocardiogram and you're like, well, it's saying tricuspid regurgitation, but I didn't hear that. How many times have you done an echocardiogram on somebody and you found tricuspid regurgitation? That's great. That does not help, but that's fine. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. Right, so still, but like you find stenosis and deep vein thrombosis and things like that, right? All right, cool. Uh, treatment is usually surgical, especially if we learn to how to grade the murmur. And we're gonna learn how to do that as well. When you see like murmurs one out of six and things like that, I'm gonna show you how to do that as well, okay? Um, there are about 100,000 valve replacement repairs in the United States each year. That's a lot of valves, okay? So the problems are out there. You need to find it, okay? And the colitis. So um, somebody came up to me right now, and without like giving you the answers to OSCEs, um, when you get a cardiology OSCE, just know that um, it's not probably not going to be a code. If they do that to you, that's just messed up, all right? But it's going to be like endocarditis. It's going to be CHF, AFib. STEMI, those are like the big ones that we love to use, right? And then you're like, <laughs> uh, uh, relax, it's cool, it's not that big of a deal, I promise, you're gonna be okay. All right, so if somebody's going through left heart failure, we have to look at what they come in with. Dyspnea, remember we have to use fancy words in order to make more money, right? So, difficulty breathing, right? Orthopnea, which is basically I need a couple of pillows to uh, like, go to sleep because if I have one pillow or lay flat, I cannot breathe in the middle of the night and I wake up like, you know, basically choking on my own self. So when you see orthopnea plus two, that means there's two pillows that it takes for them to fall asleep comfortably. So they say orthopnea plus three, that means it takes three pillows for them to fall asleep comfortably. The head of the bed, by the way, no need to know that, but usually the head of the bed on a patient usually like 30 degrees anyway, right? I know we all go to sleep like this or like this or whatever, right? But 
you know, just know that you probably should be up a little bit. Okay, don't spend money on Tempur-Pedic. You don't got the money right now. Don't worry. So decreased systolic or post pressures. Third heart sound is really important as well because that's really how you come up with the S3 sound. I know when you came to PA school, you just do S1, S2, right? Good. There's something called S3, S4, and you're like, well, okay, fine. S1, S2, S3, except that S3 comes before S1. Fascinating, right? But not until you understand it that you're like, oh, okay, it starts to make sense. Um, and I'm going to explain that to you in a little bit as well. When you have right heart failure, when the right side, right side of the heart starts to fail. By the way, what is the most common cause of right heart failure? Very good. Where did you learn that? Who? David. <laughs> he stole that from me. All right. Um, so, jugular, jugular venous distension. Very important, right? Everything is getting backed up on the right side. So you can see everything that's connected to the right side of the heart. That makes sense, right? Because superior cave, it's all coming through all here. So if there's a backup of fluid, and that's exactly what happens. You have to think, again, there's a pump. You know there's a pump, right? And the only way that fluid gets moving is if there's movement, believe it or not, right? Because the aorta is going to constantly pump blood. It's on a pressure system. The pressure system is the heart, right? However, the veins, though, will only move blood if you move the extremity. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? If you open and close, right? Some of you probably threw some clots right now, God forbid, right? Because you're not moving your feet. So the valves don't open and close. It's the same thing on you too. Like they're not opening and closing. If you're not walking, if you're taking in too much salt, if you're taking in too much fluid, if you're not pumping the blood the right way, it's gonna get backed up. And when it gets backed up, you start to get swollen. Because where is it gonna go? It's still got a pump. Right? And eventually it's just going to keep going. And if you're not diagnosing the patient, if you're not enlarging the vessels so that they can take everything out, it's just going to keep pumping and it's going to get keep backing up fluids, causing pyridema, uh, causing hepatosplenic megaly. Because the IVC runs almost right through the liver sometimes. So it'll enlarge and it'll cause the, the, the liver to enlarge. Right? Pyridema. These are very important things because if we're backing up fluid, the triad that you really need to think about heart failure, especially like congestive heart failure, is shortness of breath, because you're backed up with fluid, right? Bi-basal arrayals, or rails, or whatever you want to call them. And do you guys know what that sounds like? Not yet? Okay. So it's literally like, imagine if you're like a kid, I know some of you are already kids, sorry. So basically, like, if you see like a stairwell, some of you may not know what that looks like, because you take elevators, but, and then like the stairs you go up have like glass on them. But back in the day, there used to be like bars on stairwells. So just get a stick. You might know, you're from Hialeah, they have like, like all right, cool. So the stairs are still like that, I know this. So just take a stick and just run down the rail like, right? That's rails. That's literally rails. Now you're probably gonna see them consolidating or hear them consolidating on the basis, because why? Gravity. It's got to settle somewhere, right? And that's towards the end of the, the, the connection or the exchange of you know, oxygenated blood and deoxygenated blood, right? And if nothing is moving, it's just going to get backed up again. So when somebody breathes, that fluid is rubbing against all the vasculature and the pleural and causing a right? That's whales. Bronchi, you hear it more like in pneumonia and bronchitis and things like that. 
And wheezing, when do we see wheezing? Asthma, because what's happening in asthma? There's a constriction of the actual airway or the actual you know, bronchioles. And that, anytime, you see that already. Sometimes you got freaked out as a kid. Do you remember sometimes, if you ever lived in a apartment building, you get it. But like you hear out of nowhere when the wind is blowing. And you're like, what the heck was that? That's the wind going through a narrow space and you're hearing it. If you're from Miami, you don't hear it that often, but it gets windy sometimes now. So that's what's happening. You're constricting the, the airway, or the bronchioles, and air, which you're breathing in, causes the wheezing. That's what causes the noise. So I think it's easier to break things down like that. I don't know, for me it is. I was like that dumb in PA school, so imagine. And aside is just the whole abdomen getting backed up with fluid, which we knew was going to happen because the heart is still pumping, but it's not effective at pumping, so it's failing to pump, right? Right, heart failure is failing to pump the way that it's supposed to. I want you to pump out at least 55% of this blood in the left ventricle, and if you're not able to do that, it's going to get backed up, right? That's what's happening. Now, that's what's happening, and that's what creates the S3 sound. Because the S3 sound is because there's so much back of the fluid that when the heart starts to expand to click, the system, the fluid hits the heart wall, the walls of the heart, and creates another sound. So that's why we call it a gallop. A gallop is like a horse, right? Right? So we know lubbed up, right? Right? But S3 is that extra click, or not a click, but an extra gallop before S1 and S2. Because before I can contract, I hear a and that doom, the first thing you hear is the fluid hitting the walls of the heart. So you hear doom to doom, doom to doom, doom to doom. That to doom at the end, that's your normal to doom. Like it's your normal love dub. Does that make any sense? Are you guys more confused? That's all it is. So right when I'm about to have systemic happen, doom. And then it's doom doom. That's what you're looking at. I'm sorry, I mean, it's like sound effects are horrible. But Loki sounds like ultra right now. It's cool. So. That's exactly what's happening. Now, S4 is going to happen because there's some sort of injury to the wall. So if they tell you the person has an S3 gallop, that means they have some sort of backup of fluid. Okay, because you can't hear that on a test, right? S4, if they tell you there's an S4, then some sort of ischemic event happened where there's like a stiff wall. What happens, how did that stiff wall happen? They might have had an MI. Something, some sort of injury happened to cause that S4 to happen. If they have S3, S4, absolutely, that's dangerous. They're really in a bad shape, but it can happen, absolutely, okay? And then again, you need to know about aortic regurgitation, other murmurs, when they're regurgitating, so now maybe you do ex expel all that fluid out, but you're not able to because there's a regurgitation or because there's a stenosis, that's gonna cause a backup of fluid as well because I'm not able to pull everything out of the heart like I'm supposed to, okay? So we already went over this. Like I said, you should look at this. Now, I want you to, um, I want you to take out like a piece of paper, okay? Um, yeah, just take out a piece of paper. You got like two minutes to do this. I want, I want, the reason why I do this is because it is important to me that you get murmurs down. It's very important. You remember this day for the rest of your life. I hope so. If not, you have amnesia, okay? Yes. You could do it on your iPads and your Surface Pros and your whatnots, your 
I sound like an old person. That's, okay, that's fine. I know. We're happy, but what is that? You know what? I, this realized something to me. Some of you, anybody born before 1990? Uh, okay, yes, yes. Wow, like five people. So do you remember, my son the other day asks me, and he has like a laptop for school. He's in fourth grade. You know what my son asked me? He said, you know, Papa, I need an iPad for school. I'm like, no, you don't. And then I realized, he does. He actually does need this nonsense. Can I, so the people born from the 90s, can I tell you in the fifth grade, I was excited because they didn't let me use a pen in the sixth grade. Yeah. Do you remember that? I was like, ha, they trust me with this. Like, and you now the pen that you have is a two-room battle one that they sell you with the iPads. You son of a, I swear to God. Look at how spoiled you are. I don't know who you are, never mind. So, so that's important, like, learning is changing, like, it's important. So, if you have a paper, um, you're normal, and it's good. I want you to turn this, wait, if you know what this word means, landscape. Do you know what that means? Right? For those of you with phones, that's the opposite of portrait mode. Uh, opposite of selfie mode. That, there you go, can you hold it up? Show us what's, thank you, there you go. That's landscape mode, because that's the picture you'd want to take in a landscape of things. Okay, do you guys know what a landscape looks like? Napa Valley, highly recommended. Anyway, so I want you to write number one, like Mr. Taps, that this is something we've called Mr. Taps, M-R-T-A-P-S, right? M-R-T-A-P-S, okay? And write it out just like that. This is important, because when you're dealing with murmurs, it's important to know the location. I already told you, all physicians take money, or all physicians enjoy taking money, but you'll never need to know Herb's point. Especially for a murmur, there's no murmur there, I'm gonna be honest, you'll see this, you'll see this come true, I promise. So all physicians take money. They got the location down. What's important is that you know the timing of a murmur. Timing is systolic or diastolic, right? That's important, okay? Mr. Taps is all your systolic murmurs. That's it. So if they tell you, oh, there's a systolic ejection murmur, you know immediately the play that we're gonna run is Mr. Taps, okay? And I'm gonna break it down for you. So you're gonna skip a little space and you're gonna like know that the ones on the top use the diaphragm, the ones on the bottom use uh, the bell. That's not always true though, like, so don't focus on I'm telling you, once you get the location down, once you get the timing down, you don't even need to know what's hurting the bell and the diaphragm. In order to remember, because you're going to want to come back and do this again, remember if we do it again and again, we get really good at it, right? This is something I tell students taking the pens to remember to write down on their whiteboard, by the way, and it works 100% of the time. This is good things to remember, okay? So, the next thing you need to know, is that these are systolic numbers, right? You're gonna split this apart. You're gonna put MRT, just the same way that is written down here, MRT and APS on top. And you're gonna put a line right through it. If I go too fast, or if I, this is one of those times it's okay to ask me a question. And I was right. Right after I said, don't ask me a stupid question, two people came up and asked me a question. I'm just playing, I'm just playing. <laughs> okay, we're good so far? I promise you, this is just gonna be like, you're gonna be like mind blown by this. Because I was very bad at murmurs when I was in PA school. And this is why I tell you that Professor Hancock is a legend, because when I studied his material um, for the 
Pants and Pan Lee, I never in my life, never have I ever, missed a question on murmurs. Every single time. Like again, I know some of you think I'm cocky and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I've dealt with that my whole life, but it is what it is. I, I, I don't know how to change that. It's just who I am. It's confidence, honestly. But here's the thing, 100%. Can you tell me that you can do something 100% of the time, right? All these radiate up. So what do I mean? If it's in the mitral valve, it's going to radiate up to the axilla, right? Because we listen to the mitral valve on the mid-axillary line, right? Fifth intercostal space, that's the apex, right? Of the heart. Even the base of the heart is on top and then the apex is on the bottom. Alright, good. So, now, you should know that all these systolic murmurs, they radiate up. That's not even something important either. We're still not even there. The next thing you need to know that what we're talking about when we talk about MRT and APS, it's mitral regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation. Okay? Those are your systolic murmurs. Up top here, that's your aortic stenosis and your pulmonic stenosis. It's not going to make sense yet, but when we put it together, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay? And then you know S1, but then you know the first heart sound is made by the mitral valve and the tricuspid valve. This helps you remember that. The S2 is made by your aortic and your, and your, and your pulmonic valves, and that's all that. These are found in the apex, these are in the base. Now, how do you remember the diastolic murmurs? They literally do the opposite. They radiate down and they don't belong to Mr. Taps. So if they, if they say diastolic, it is not mitral regurgitation, it is not tricuspid regurgitation, it is not aortic stenosis, it is not pulmonic stenosis. Those are your systolic murmurs. Do you need to remember the diastolic murmurs? You really don't, because all you really need to know is the systolic murmurs. If you got those down, everything else is diastolic. Don't make it too confusing for yourself. This is not going to make entire sense just yet. It's going to make sense when you answer questions on this, when you use it, when you utilize this. This is just a play, but you're not going to learn to play until we get in the game, right? You're good? Yeah, you're good. I feel you. We're going to have a break soon, I promise. All right? Okay? These are your systolic murmurs. Very important. You cannot miss this. You cannot mess this up. Every time you hear systolic murmurs, every time you read systolic murmurs, we run Mr. Taps every single time. Okay? So we're going to run it now. Yes, I can. Yes. It's okay. Now send it to the whole group in chat so that we don't have to do that again. All right, cool, thanks. All right. Let's break it down, okay? They're telling us, a 72-year-old female presents with a nuanced systolic blowing murmur that radiates to the axilla. What is, most, what is the most likely murmur? They gave us nothing else. They gave us no symptoms. They gave us nothing else. They gave us the timing. What's the timing on this? Systolic, right? Timing is systole or diastole, right? So systolic, very good, okay, good. Right? Then it says that it radiates up to the axilla. So immediately, this could be the... I mean, what's... 
what's at the axolite? What's going to radiate up? A mitral valve. But of the mitral valve stenosis or regurgitation, which one is systolic? It's not mitral stenosis or aortic regurgitation, right? Because these are what? Diastolic murmurs. You need that either, right? So just by using Mr. Taps, we know that this is a systolic play, right? So we're going to use Mr. Taps. But does the aorta radiate up to the axilla? The aorta is over here. Right? Sorry, here. <laughs> All right? The aorta is over here. Where is the aorta going to radiate up to? The neck. Right? To the neck. That's one of the most important things about the aorta stenosis also. That when it happens, the stenosis, you can not only hear it on the right upper sternal border of the patient, but if you tell the patient to hold your breath, please tell your patients to hold their breath when you listen to the carotids. Why? Because if not, you're going to hear them breathe. And everything's going to sound like a systolic murmur. No. So have them hold their breath and then you hear whoosh, boom, whoosh, boom, whoosh, boom. And that's important. Question. You could hear it in the axle, like if you went to the armpit and want to put your stethoscope there, you could hear it. Does that make sense? All right. By the way, I saw you say D, so thank you so much. You got the country correct. I'm going to, one thing, I don't know if I'm going to do this anymore, but one thing I used to do is like, I don't know how I used to do it, but like, so I have like season tickets to the Miami Heat. Oh, Miami Heat fans, <laughs> okay, you might be going to get them. So, uh, and very nice tickets, very good tickets, okay? They're awesome, they're third row, uh, okay? Very nice, okay? So I forgot how I used to give them out. Like, sometimes they're like, hey, whoever answers this correctly or whatever, like, gets to go to a heat game. And it has to be one that I'm not going to. So if you think it's like the Lakers or like the Warriors, it's like, not, it's like, the Pelicans or something, whatever. But it's a game, it's cool, like you still have a good time. Like, yeah, I still go. <laughs> I don't care about exams, we're good. All right. All right, so, while listening in the second intercostal space to the right of the sternum, what heart sound would be the loudest? Now, wait, break it down, okay? Because what they're asking us is, first of all, what do you hear in the right sternum border? Okay. So, exactly, good. So then they're going to let you know what creates the S2 sound. Right? Here you go. Break, easy, take it easy, take it, break it down one by one. We know S3 is like overload, fluid overload. S4 is some sort of ischemic event. A friction rub, pericarditis. Okay? I'm not saying anything new to you guys, am I? No? Alright, cool. Uh, gross, uh, gross even more. Okay, this is Mr. Taps, right? Just broken down to you again, if this is how you prefer to see it. Um, somebody brought up a chart to me, that's good that we make charts. If you're the kind of person that receives charts, it's not gonna be the play. You have to make the chart in order for this to work. Uh, I'll tell you why, because that chart was organized in that person's head. So then what's going to happen is that, and again, I need some charts, I'll share with you guys. Thank you for sharing it, you should still share it, that's fine. 
we'll find something there. But what's going to happen is like, I used your chart, but they didn't really help me because it's their chart. That's how it's organized in their brain. So what you should do is make your own chart. Because that's how your brain works. It compartmentalizes, compartmentalizes how your brain works, okay? Um, I need you to know this slide as well because a lot of times, uh, so again, you can take a picture of this or screenshot, whatever you want. Um, this will really help you out a lot. How to assess and make sure the memory is not getting really bad and if you find one, please do an echocardiogram. That is the most sensitive way to assess a, a, a murmur. It's very important that you understand that, okay? So this will help you show how you increase a murmur, whether you're in, doing inspiration, breathing in, breathing out. Um, in the squatted standing, uh, squat to standing or stand to uh, squatting, what's gonna do, especially when it comes to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they love to ask questions on this. I love to ask questions on this as well. How do we accentuate why am I pronouncing these things so slow? Uh, how do you accentuate like these murmurs? What makes them louder? What makes them go away? That's really important. They love to use these weird little jabs on you, and you have to know what you're dealing with. Okay, really important. Um, so aortic stenosis, the maneuver. You know, maneuver. You just got to know. You just got to know that it's the right person on board and it leads to the neck. Okay, except for when it doesn't, and I'll tell you when that happens. So these are your aortic valves, okay? This is what it's supposed to look like when it's normal, when it's open and closed. And then what happens when it's stenosis? And that's really, if you think about it, like if you really break it down, and that's, like when I break things down to you, it's not to offend you, it's to let you know, I was once there, not there though, like we had like much more ghetto seats. We were like in the brown building there. And we had, remember the desk like you sit on and it has like a little arrow? You ever seen that? God, I can't remember. Like, I just realized how young you are. When only five of you raised your hands or before 1990, severely discouraged in my life right now. So, it's okay though. So, sometimes when I explain things to you, it makes more sense because that's how it made sense to me. And it may not make more sense to you. But why does that happen? Why, when we know something, when we know something, why does it make that noise? So, those of you that um, this might relate to you if you grew up in Hialeah or me in the bad side of Dadeland. Um, you know there's a bad side to Dadeland, right? So like on the right side there's like uh, like the mall, which is totally different now. And then like behind me is like Amory and all that. Okay, so. And then the other side there was like a circuit city, if you guys remember all that. Okay, and so the apartments there were a bunch of little poor kids. I was one of those little poor kids. So we had a pool, but sometimes we couldn't afford to go to the pool. Especially when I finally moved out of it, and then I moved into what they call the hammocks, right? That's not a bad place. That's, that's a pretty nice place. But what did you do when you couldn't go to the pool? You got a water hose. And you hate the freaking rain as a child, but what did you do? You would get the hose and squeeze it and, and make it like cover a little bit. You know what you do? You used to loosen the hose to make it rain. <laughs> Don't worry. That's how you used to make it rain. You're like, oh my god, it's like the sun, but I'm still, this is amazing, right? And just to piss you, like, you know, like, stay at your sister and all that, and it was, it was amazing. Those were good times, right? But look what you would do. Now we make it rain differently. There you go, Daniel. Now we make it rain differently. It's all good, we're good. I'm gonna catch you outside one time, let me see. <laughs> 
that's the worst. When you run into one of your students, like three weeks ago, by the way, the place to absolutely go, I am going to become sponsored by them for sure in Miami. If you have not been, it is amazing. Okay, um, and so, and then I ran into a student who was kind of awkward. Like, hey. I was like, what, what? <laughs> so, but what you were doing is like, and then when we did that, when we stimulated the hose, it made a but then you sometimes would just do just to hear the noise, right? That's the pump. So that's exactly what's happening in stenosis. You're narrowing the place with the pressure still going, you're gonna hear that swishing sound. That's exactly what that's, that is. I mean if I had to explain it any other way. Alright? These are what about this is a dead person by the way, we just so you know. Um, look at how stenosis is that like that's what it's supposed to look like, but that might have been the Actually, that might be normal, but I don't know. This doesn't look too good. Um, have you guys gone to the morgue yet? No. It's, it's all right. How many of you excited to go to the morgue? You freaks. Uh, I hated the morgue. Um, so basically, that's what stenosis is, that we're narrowing the aortic valve. What causes the narrowing? There's multiple things that cause the narrowing. The most common cause is a senile narrowing. So because we think about when we get older, we only get wrinkles in our face and our, our, our skin. Your valves and your, your arteries and your veins, they get wrinkles too. And so that is the most common cause of stenosis with age. Did you not know that when you get, you didn't the insides of you wrinkled? <laughs> so, what? <laughs> so, that's when stenosis really happens. The other type of stenosis can happen congenital. You could be born with a bicuspid aortic valve. And we know that it has like three openings, right? Like, kind of, I'll show you what it looks like. Um, all right, here we go, perfect. So the other causes rheumatic heart disease and then there are other causes here. But look at this, look at the normal valve. That's a normal aortic valve. Followed by a congenital aortic stenosis. See how we have three openings here? Here there's only one, okay? C is rheumatic, aortic stenosis. They're not gonna be tested in this. They're not gonna be like, hey, what's D and what kind of, no. That's not gonna happen. You just know that these things can happen. So, a bicuspid aortic stenosis again, okay? E is like the most common one, just narrowing due to age, okay? We're almost there, guys. Actually, I see a lot of people like knocked out right now. So we're just gonna take a break and come back at 5.30. It's all good, I've been there. What slide number are we on? 45? Uh, we'll pick it up. Let's do it. Okay, yeah, I have to call a break because there are a lot of people just falling asleep on me. It's okay though. We end this at seven o'clock, so we've got a little bit to go, but we are gonna finish this on time, I promise you, okay? Cause it's not that out of it. Now, some of you came up to me and told me like, yo, the way you sucks. And I get that, I understand, no, I'm playing. But like, you know, you have your own thing like, you know, um, Caesar, what's your last name, Thompson? Thompson's your first name? Yeah, 
Yo, that should be like backwards. It should be Caesar Thompson. Why do you get your last name first and your first name Mass? Really? Last name ever. Anyway, first word. So, uh, yeah, you could do. Uh, see, now I want to say Mr. Thompson. That's weird. Uh, Mr. Caesar's way of doing that, and uh, you know, and then um, what was your name in the bag? Liam. Oh, I'm getting to know your names now. That's intense. Um, he had a way more difficult way to remember it for me, though. But like, do you like if you have it down another way? This is not the way. This is just my way. And if it helps you, it helps you. If not, like, goes off. Like, whatever gets you there. Um, and it's getting you there. Like, your way works. And then your way is different. And your way works for you. Like, do it. That's what I'm saying. Like, at the end of the day, as long as you get to the destination, right? It doesn't matter how you go through it. Just how you get to it. Okay? All right. Write that one down. All right. So. By cuspic aortic valve, again, most common congenital heart an uh, anomaly. Um, very common that you may, the way that you're going to discover this is when they start to have the symptoms of aortic stenosis earlier in life, right? So usually aortic stenosis, if it's a senile valve, it'll be somebody that has, um, you know, the symptoms after the age of 60, and I'll show you the symptoms that they're going to come up with, okay? So, um, 15% of those patients may have sudden cardiac death as well. Uh, pneumatic fever, pretty, it's not that as common. This is very common if, like, back in the days before, like, penicillin. So what we do is, like, uh, this is why it's very important to, as if you learn how to treat, like, strep, legit. Because if you don't uh, treat strep, like, effectively or at all, you could end up with a rheumatic fever. And you don't want to end up, you know, what I call, you don't want that smoke. Like, it gets really bad. Um, so... It is still prevalent in other countries because, yeah, penicillin, what is that to us? It's like M&M's, right? But in other countries, it doesn't exist, okay? So almost always in combination with mitral malady, that's the number one cause of it as well. Other causes could be lupus, there's um, severe familial hypercholesterolemia, Febreze disease, look that up when you want to, Patch's disease, orchinosis as well can cause all this. This is the little, another mnemonic, I know some of you guys like mnemonics, ASH is a mnemonic that we're looking for in these patients, and that's basically angina, 50% mortality in three years, syncope, heart failure, or dyspnea on, ex on exertion, okay? So ASH, A-S-H, angina, or angina, how you want to call it, syncope, and heart failure. That's what you're looking for. Because it's important that they sometimes will present a question to you, not telling you it's aortic stenosis, but you need to determine that it's aortic stenosis, not just that, oh, it's a systolic injection when they're hurt, that's in the right upper border, and it radiates up, but they may just tell you, a patient comes in with angina, um, they had one episode of syncope, and the ejection fraction is like 40, right? So you also have to determine different ways to find your different diagnoses, right? So it's really important that we understand the symptoms that they're going to come in with, okay? So any one of those symptoms, though, is going to probably determine um, how quickly they might die also, all right? That's gross. Uh, so angina, again, it's going to be in 35% of your patients. I didn't show you this because it's, it's all right. You don't need to know when patients are going to die right now. Not in this class. You're good. Um, but secondary to myocardial ischemia, O2 demand exceeds the supply, meaning we don't have enough oxygen for what you're requiring in the heart. That's all that means, okay? So frequently occurs in aortic stenosis in the absence of coronary artery disease and concentric left ventricular hypertrophy then starts to develop because of the pressure overload from the aortic stenosis, okay? 
Now, when you run into statements like this and you don't know what we're talking about, that's absolutely normal. Just break it down to yourself, try to understand what's going on, and then it'll make a lot more sense, okay? That's just for your information. You don't really need to know it that well. Effort syncope. So this is um, something important. You should know what the mean arterial pressure is. This is something that we commonly use in the critical care setting as well. So I know you're getting into the habit of learning how to help yourself with the blood pressures. Um, but we really like to pay attention to the mean arterial pressure, which is two times the diastolic plus the systolic over three, and that's what helps you determine the map of a patient, and then that's gonna help us how much uh, pressures we're gonna give, if we're gonna give them any pressures. So um, I'm just gonna be straightforward with you. You do not need to know this formula, but just know that it exists, and know that you will eventually need it. Um, need it in the sense that then you should know what's happening in the map. But other than that, how do we calculate the map? We don't, the monitor does it for us now. We're so freaking lazy. like. It's just a thing, okay? So uh, just know that, but in case you ever have to, for whatever reason, you have the formula there. And you think about this, and you're like, I'm never gonna need that. But then you're like, oh my God, Professor Norman, I remember, like, slide, what number is this? 30-ish, um, and it's on there, so just in case you ever need it. Or Google it. So, um, secondary uh, AFib or classification of the convection system can lead to AD blocks. We already went over this already, kind of already. So you're good. CHF, again, 50% of the patients will have heart failure um, in, uh, in aortic stenosis. But again, like I said, when we're stenosing something, when we're narrowing something, or there's regurgitation, it's going to be a backup of fluid. So again, it's going to be causing some sort of heart failure. We're not going to be able to eject everything out that's actually in the heart. So it's very important. Okay. Um, okay, so we know um, that the aortic stenosis, one of the great things about it is that it radiates up to the neck, right? That's important. But when it starts to like go to the apex, that's something called the Gatavardin's uh, phenomenon. So then you think, well then, how do I know it's aortic stenosis? Well, because the other thing that goes there to the apex is what? The mitral valve, right? What happens is when you start thinking about the difference, when that's the thing, a lot Things sometimes can be the same. This Gatavardin's phenomenon is not common, by the way, but it's something that can happen in aortic stenosis. So again, it often disappears over the sternum and then reappears in the apical area, mimicking a mitral regurgitation. But you have to know when you actually have the patient like hold their breath, that's going to probably change the mitral regurgitation. It will not make a change if it's aortic stenosis. If this is aortic stenosis from the Gatavardin's uh, phenomenon. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. All you really need to know is that aortic stenosis goes to the neck. When it doesn't, it's called Gatavardin's phenomenon. And that's it for the rest of your life. You probably don't need to know anything else, okay? So it's a systolic ejection murmur, like I said, located in the right upper sternal border. So now, we got a systolic. That means they gave us the timing. As soon as they told us systolic, then we know it's Mr. Taps, right? Or Mr. Ass, or as, whatever you want. <laughs> Mr. Has arms, okay, whatever, right? So, but then, how do we break that down? How do we break these four down? How do we break down Mr. Taps? The next thing that they gave us is the location. Location, location. We know it's systolic. But then we know that the systolic numbers, there's four of them. The next thing they gave us is the location. Which of the Mr. Taps is located in the right upper sternal border? the aortic stenosis, right? Good, that was awesome. You guys, I know you were thinking about it while I was speaking about it. That's awesome. So um, again, 
and then the symptoms that they're going to give you, right? They, they had a syncopal episode. They're having some chest pain, which is the angina, right? Or whatever it is. Every, everything starts to make more sense once you have different angles that you can attack these disease processes with, okay? So hand grip, that's something that we like to ask questions on. Um, I do it sometimes when I'm in the clinical setting as well because it does help us differentiate different murmurs um, in the ER. We don't do it so much, but I was doing it a lot when I was doing uh, cardiology as well. So hand grip decreases the systemic vascular resistance afterload, thus causing a decrease in the intensity of AS. So basically, when you have them grip your hands, aortic stenosis gets worse, right? Instead of putting out all the mumbo jumbo. But that can also be seen in hokum and hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy as well. So you gotta help, you deter you help yourself determine that. But what's different with locum? Well, it doesn't relate to the neck, right? That's, that's the place that we gotta look at. Like, what is the difference in all these things that are so similar? So again, this also helps us distinguish the murmur from that of MR, which increases intensity with increased afterload, right? I said that to you, that if we're thinking about that this is a gallop orange or something like that, if we increase that intensity, that's going to happen with the mitral regurgitation or maybe decrease if we do the opposite. But in aortic stenosis, it's pretty consistent. It's going to stay aortic stenosis. Okay, question. That's exactly what it says. The incre increase, the, it decreases the intensity of aortic stenosis, how much you hear it. But it's going to be important that you also listen to the neck at that moment. So... I'm sorry, I was under the impression that it increases... Give me one second, now I'm confused, hang on. Afterload does cause a decrease in the intensity. Also see, yes, that's a correct statement. This helps the issues. What's your question? I'm confused. side now. Just, you know what? Look at this one right here. It doesn't do much to aortic stenosis to be real with you. And then that's it. What side number was that? Yeah, just look at that. I might have written that wrong, actually. Yeah, that's nauseating now that I look at it. Thanks. Move on. Okay, so these are that. No, it's cool. I'm good with that. I mean, whatever. Yes. What is your name? Claudia. Claudia, what is your name? You guys meet together after class and figure that out. <laughs> All right? <laughs> I found a match. Look at that. Like super, super hinge or timber or whatever, right? You're good. That was not good. All right, so um, we're going to move on. Vassava maneuvers, decreases speed to the heart. Again, I, I know there's been too much on this because I, it's too late. Like, we already know the timing. We already know the location of the murmur. And that's what I'm telling you, like once we got that, we're golden. Like all the listening to the diaphragm and the bell and it increases the Valsalva, things like that. That's more important when we talk about Hokum and MVP. Okay. Uh, auscultation hormones, paradoxic splitting of S2, that's back and forth splitting of S2, that could be very common, okay. Um, absence soft A2, which leads to soft S2, you don't need to know about this, you're good, you're good. You don't need to know that, you're good. I'm not going to spend time on carotid upstroke because, like I said, this is something that you're going to learn later on in your clinical settings and your, um, in your rotations. 
the reason why I don't go over it too much is because you will know what early stenosis is when I tell you medically and clinically what it is. The carotid upstroke isn't going to help you make the decision here, okay? It will help you confirm the decision once you're in your rotations and things like that, but I'm going to be early. It's not going to happen here. Um, Pulses, pelvis, and tardis, that's basically uh, the single best way to estimate the severity of aortic stenosis at the bedside. So, like, the delay in pulses is basically where that's happening. But, again, the grading of the, the, grading of the, of the murmurs is another way that I'm going to show you that. You, the severity comes in with the grading of the murmurs, so we're not going to pay attention to this either. I told you we're going to go through this real quick. Apogloin pulse, again, is something that you'll learn in your labs with uh, Professor Santos, so I'll let them spend more time on that. I, like I said, I'm not going to go over things that I'm not going to test you on, you're not going to see it on the exam, and on my exam at least, or on the pants, so we'll let that go on. Okay, heart failure for sure. So like we talked about this already, right? Like right ventricular heart failure, or uh, right, right-sided heart failure, and left-sided heart failure, and you see the kind of the, the symptoms that you get, and they're very important very important symptoms that you know how to do. And you also, like you know already, the most common cause of right ventricular, or right, right heart failure is left, uh, left heart failure. So an EKG can help us with this because I'm not sure if you guys went over how to see hypertrophy of the ventricles, of the left ventricle. Have you guys gone over how to see left ventricular hypertrophy? You have. Only one person picked up on that. Yes? No? Very good. On the spikes of the QRS in the precordial leads is what you're saying to me. I read your mind. All right. Anybody else know how to do that? Because there was only one person in that lecture, apparently. You guys know, right? Yeah? You're just not excited about it. I guess why I hate teaching in the evening, man. Everybody's gone already. Um, chest x-ray, what could we see if there's a heart failure? What would you likely see? Think about it. Just think about it. What would you see? Yeah. A dilated ventricle on the x-ray. What would you see, though? Like, what is that going to cause? Good, you're saying it with your hands. Cardiomegaly, very good. How do you determine cardiomegaly on an x-ray? It has to do more than what? More than two-thirds of the, the metastinum there, right? Very good, okay. What else would we see if there's a back of a fluid? What else could we see? Curly B lines. You stole that from somewhere. Right, congestion, right? All these congestion things happening, and now, I mean, we're not good at reading x-rays just yet, right? Or we're good, we're not great at them yet, but that's because we don't do it enough. So those are the things you can see on the chest. What about an echocardiogram? What could we find on an echocardiogram if we're thinking about, huh? Low ejection fraction, right? And then stenosis or regurgitation, right? Really important. And the cardiac catheterization could also help us, right? And cardiac catheterization is a little bit more accurate in gathering an ejection fraction as well. It's not just to look at your arteries, right? We're able to look at how the blood is flowing the whole time. It, so cardiac catheterization is done through like a fluoroscopy. It's basically constant images, like, like a, if you think about it, it's like a, I hope it doesn't raise you can understand. So it's kind of like a panoramic view, right? When you have like a camera and you want to get a whole landscape and it's just going like this like that right so in the catheterization that's what's happening except the x-ray keeps going so fast constant images where you're able to see live images of how fast is happening and you can actually see the flow bless you bless you like of how fast the the or how hard the heart is pumping and where the where the circulation is going okay
Uh, we kind of did this already, right? So you see some left ventricular hypertrophy. You might see left bundle branch block. I'll tell you right now, right off the back, any new left bundle branch block with chest pain is an MI to proven otherwise. Any new, any new left bundle branch block with chest pain is an MI to proven otherwise. So how do you know it's new on an exam? They'll tell you these are changes from a prior EKG or there's no prior EKG available. So now that we're going to become clinicians, what is important to do when you get an EKG? Is there an old one? Did they have this before? That's really important. Did these T waves look like this before? Is there a left bundle branch block in the last one? These are important. You might see some STT wave changes, right? And then we kind of know this already. Okay, so it's good. Like pulmonary congestion, we saw classification of the aorta. These are all findings you can see on the aortic stenosis, right? Okay, so treatment. Um, you need to understand that a lot of times you just need an aortic valve replacement. Right, um, and then it's up to you which type you want to do. Do you want to do like a porcine valve? Do you want to do uh, you know what's the other one called? Porcine uh, is another one, and then or a mechanical valve. Right, these are all really really important to to know. But other than that, um, after the aortic valve surgery, there's about a two three percent mortality rate. That's kind of high. That means for every, you know, obviously every 100 people that we do, 2 to 3% may not make it. Um, um, so this is really important. Um, so usually not indicated for asymptomatic patients. That's an important statement because I keep telling you, stop treating the labs. Stop treating the echocardiogram. What is the patient showing you? Do not treat the murmur, right? Don't treat the rhythm. Treat the patient. I will constantly tell you this. Like, don't get caught up on that, okay? So again... The best thing is uh, to do the uh, echocardiogram, and if the gradient is more than 30 millimeters of mercury, repeat the, uh, the history and physical you know, every six months with instructions to alert the physician as soon as symptoms occur. So it's a process. It's not just, oh, I hear aortic stenosis because it's nevada persona border and it's radiating into the carotid. You got a problem. No, we have to do an echocardiogram. We have to see. Is your angina? Do you get pain from this? Do you get shortness of breath from this? Do you get any any heart failure symptoms from this? Right? That's all really important. Do you pass out? That's important, right? That's all really important things. I'll tell you another thing that happens um, in aortic stenosis. If you've discovered aortic stenosis, especially in the patient that on an exam, and they tell you they came in with chest pain and they passed out from it. You have to understand that that's possibly going to be aortic stenosis because the next thing they don't even tell you, hey, we got a systolic injection murmur in the right upper sternal border and radius of the carotids. So you know it's aortic stenosis. They gave you the symptoms, they gave you the, the, the signs of it as well. And then your bet is going to be them telling you, hey, we want to make sure that this was not a heart attack. Would you like to do a stress test first thing in the morning? No. We do not do stress tests on patients that have aortic stenosis. It will kill them. And remember, we're not in the business of killing people. So a stress test is contraindicated in a patient that has known aortic stenosis. They will die. They will not be able to compensate what's happening. So what could you do instead? You could do a cardiac cath. You could do a CTE angiogram. You could do so many different things. We're way more advanced than wanting to do a stress test, which is like old school anyway. So um, Again, in advanced disease, it's still beneficial to have the replacement 
there's really no increased mortality um, in advanced disease. They're going to die anyway, right? So um, contraindications, most patients with a low transvalvular uh, gradient, so anything less than 30 millimeters of mercury, and advanced heart failure do not improve status post a, um, the aortic valve replacement. So you're not going to do much for them. So again, the risks versus benefits are very important when we're thinking about medicine and we're thinking about what sort of in intervention that we're going to do for these patients. It's very, very, very important. We can't just cut people open to do it. Um, you got to understand that it's going to have to make a difference. And is it worth the risk when we walk into this surgery, when we walk into this procedure? Because uh, even though now, like, I mean, if you look at how we do aortic valve replacement, like, uh, you know, some of you guys, you know, like before we used to crack open the chest, and you see that, like, they're like, their stitches are still there, and it's really ugly looking. We're so advanced. There's uh, the guy that's very famous down here, Dr. Lamellas. He's actually in the UN. The guy's super famous. And basically, he'll do it almost uh, non-invasively. He'll, he'll do like what you would call a laparoscopic way of doing the actual um, valve replacement. The guy is a genius. And if that's one of your heroes, you're picking the right people. Do you know him? You, you, yeah, yeah. So basically, this guy was in Mount Sinai before, right? And you want to know how good you can get? I mean, I'm definitely not that good at all. Like, not even close. Um, the guy, he's like God, real, real talk. Like, the guy's awesome. I and mean, so basically, he was so good at what he did, he actually got bought out by someone in Texas, got the bag, came right back to Miami, and he's in UM now. Um, I was ready to take my father, who needed finally a bypass, to, I think it was to Houston or Dallas or something, to go to Texas just to get it done over there. But thankfully, he came back to UM, and I was like, no one else is in touch other than this guy. And the guy is phenomenal. But I was able to watch one of his things, and he's just amazing. Great human being, too. Like, you wouldn't know. If you had never met him, you wouldn't know that that's the Dr. Lamellas. You would have never known. So that's about it with AVR. You could do balloon vaporoplasties. Um, and I'm, again, not going to put too much time and effort onto this for you guys for nothing. Aerodiv vegetation, bless you. Um, okay, Aerodiv Gurch. Okay, so this occurs secondary uh, to a sudden decomposition caused by a rupture of the valve. So when can that happen? So sometimes you could have a massive MI that basically ruptures your cords and your tendons inside your, your heart, but to the point that it could also cause you to have problems with the actual aortic valve, okay? And other valves, all of these valves can get deconstructed because that's lack of perfusion and, and, and a whole loads of ischemia happening where everything just starts to fail, okay? So again, the etiologies, again, could be infectious, uh, like bacteria endocarditis this is something that happens commonly. You'll see endocarditis come, um, come up commonly when we talk about like IV drug abusers or people living out in the street and things like that. And you have to know the pathogens of that as well when we talk about endocarditis um, and how they affect. It could also be congenital where there's a bicuspic aortic valve. Also, Marfan syndrome patients are very um, close to this as well, bless you. Inflammatory-wise, it could be lupus, it could be rheumatic, uh, rheumatic uh, rheumatoid arthritis, or Bichette syndrome as well. Could be degenerative, okay, so myxomatous, uh, myxomatous floppy valve, so again, they could have a tumor there that's causing that as well. Um, senile degeneration due to calcification, so again, over time, eventually things are going to calcify in your body. And it could be trauma or, or through a valvular plastic that you're already trying to attempt as well. Trauma 
it is what you think it is, like a knife through the heart or whatever it is, and, and you'll see that a lot in, down here in this area particularly. So there could be root um, abnormalities, and that's where you, again, the location's important. You're going to hear this uh, murmur and this valve in the right upper sternoboard. It's really important. Um, from the root dilatation could be syphilis, Marfan syndrome, ankylosis spondylitis. This is very important to remember. Um, relapsing uh, polychondritis as well. Um, you could also have loss of commissural support. That could be from a dissection and, again, trauma. And then chronic VSD could also cause aortic regurgitation as well. So, um, again, leaflet problems could be degenerative, rheumatic. If it's bicuspid, we can have, uh, it could also be bicuspid. And again, endocarditis could either be infectious or non-infectious, but we're not going to touch that just yet. And it could be diet drugs, specifically um, like fentramine, which is big down here in Miami. Like people literally will ask you for prescriptions on fentramine. Uh, so just then there's a, there's one that's called fenfen, which is like uh, fentramine with vanilla something, I can't remember what it is, but that even has more risk of you developing um, um, aortic regurgitation. So, if you've ever thought about taking these medications, I'll, I thought about it, because who doesn't want to be skinny, um, but not worth the risk. Um, because I've actually seen two or three patients in my lifetime with this problem, and young, healthy people with nothing else going on, it's those the ones that end up usually getting it. It's not worth the risk. Um, I think it's just the lifestyle that we're in, that we want results fast, um, right? But if, at the end of the day, what one of my friends told me was abs are not made in the gym, they're made in the kitchen. Yeah, I guess, so I'm never going to have abs, right? I've always said that. And one thing that I've always said was the only ab I have is the first two letters of my name. So that's it. That joke still kills. It still works. That's a six-year joke, man. That's still killing it. Yes, question. aortic regurgitation yes yes have you guys done rheumatology yet ignore that you're good <laughs> don't even look at that yet yeah so ankylosing spondylitis can cause that it's a rheumatic condition that can do that as well um, and then you'll learn about like the, the factors like HLA B27 and all just forget it I'm not going to go into things you're going to learn in like your fifth semester it's not going to happen all right so other etiologies could be uh, hypertension, Marfan syndrome, syphilis, aneurysms could also cause this as well. Aortic dissection, obviously you can have a leaflet problem. Um, leopard, I think who, I think I teach you aortic dissections. I don't know if he's done that yet with you. So, um, and then we'll talk about that when it happens. Rupture sinus of the Vassava aneurysm, aerotrogenic, so uh, septomyectomies can happen. Again, you just need to know that different things can cause aortic regurgitation. The biggest thing, like I said, you'll need to know um, is that it, it can also be called aortic insufficiency, by the way. Aortic regurgitation and insufficiency is the same thing. Okay? Um, this is a fun slide. Take your time to take a look at this. Um, this is the pulmonary wedge pressure and what it does. Like, I'm, I'm not going to get too into the pathophysiology. I'll leave that to Dr. Deano. Symptoms. Uh, you're going to have heart failure symptoms because remember, like, we are not able to move this blood, move this fluid forward up into the rest of the body, and regurgitates back out. That's really what's happening, right? So shortness of breath. 
pulmonary edema and angina. So kind of almost like aortic stenosis as well, right? So things start to get backed up here. In chronic AR, so again, they may remain asymptomatic for many years before actually any symptoms start to occur. And then their symptoms will be like palpitations, angina, difficulty breathing. And again, you have to assess them for CHF. And then you have to start thinking about what, what could cause them to have heart failure. And one of the things that can cause you to have heart failure is an aortic, aortic regurgitation. Okay? So pul uh, pulmonary aneurysm. Uh, physical exam findings, again, so as it starts to get worse and worse, you're going to have like diastolic pressures that start to um, going to decrease, um, but your systolic is going to increase. So that's what you call a wide pulse pressure. Okay. Um, the time the left ventricle impulse may become enlarged and sustain increased amplitude. Again, what you're looking for in these patients is a diastolic murmur, right? So diastolic basically just means that when you're checking the pulse of the patient and when you feel it while you're hearing it, and that's easy to do, you could do this and feel the pulse of the patient, right? If when you feel the pulse is when you hear the whoosh, that's systolic. But if you feel the pulse and there's no whoosh and the whoosh is after the pulse, that's a diastolic murmur, okay? That's just a trick. That's just something that, you know, it, it, it's been taught to me over years, okay? Um, you may sometimes have a thrill, and a thrill is basically like you could feel the murmur, like when you touch their, their chest, you can sometimes feel that. Um, but again, it's not something that happens really commonly unless it's like really advanced. Okay? So, again, the stroke volume to maintain actual stroke volume. Again, there's a large forward stroke of that. I'm not going to get crazy into that. You can have a wide pulse pressure that, again, your systolic is super high, and, or not super high, but like high, but much higher than your diastolic, and that's what creates a wide pulse pressure in those patients, okay? Now, what you do need to remember are these other signs. So aortic insufficiency or aortic regurgitation comes with about seven other different physical exam findings that are very important to remember when you're taking an exam and when you're taking the pants specially, because that's the physical exam finding that they're going to throw at you, and they're not going to tell you that it's a diastolic murmur heard at the right of the border. That's too easy. We can't ask you that. But they may, and these are findings of like regurgitation, like at the latest stage and at its finest stage. Okay. So the resets is basically a head bob. If you get the um, opportunity to YouTube these things. That's legit what's happening. Every time that uh, you're seeing the patient and you're trying to listen insistently, their head is legit bombing, like, like right here, every time. Every time bombing, every time. Like to their pulse. That's the amount of regurgitation that's happening, that, that it just makes them get back. To the point now, you'll see, and I've seen this in real life, and it's so cool to see this in real life sucks for the patient, but it's so cool for the patient because like they're going to die. But I'm sorry, it, it happens. Unless they get a valve replacement. Relax, when you replace your valve, you guys jump to the plot so quick, it, there's, there's a happy ending. Okay, but this is very severe and a lot of times they come to you when it's too late. Right, I'm talking about like patients that I see, these are like your 60, 70 year olds, right? And they're doing this and the uvula also swings insistently as well. Right, so you have to replace their valve because they're gonna die if you don't. This is too much resistance, too much regurgitation happening to the point that they're gonna drown in their own fluids if you don't jump on this. 
Quinky's pulses, that's basically now, you can, if you look at the capillary, you know how you guys do that capillary refill, oh, it was less than two seconds and all that. You, you don't even have to touch the, the, the little nail beds. It's pulsating for you. That's how much regurgitation is happening. And again, all of these are advanced findings and they need a valve replacement ASAP as possible. All right. These are the other signs you need to know that. so nervous I know that um, some of you also asked like how do we study for Professor Hancock I was like I don't know I don't take his exam <laughs> no uh, it's the same like exams so you go to, and what why you should be comfortable with that because like I do review my exams like I tell you like hey keep an eye on this keep an eye on that and his questions are on there so we're good I'll tell you like what you need to know you're good I'm like nice just chill nice. you got it no problem thank you <laughs> thank you all right all right um Okay, so a diastolic rumble, okay? So like rumbles and things like that, like uh, don't, don't get freaked out, it's a diastolic, number one. They're telling you the, the timing of it, okay? So once you get the timing of it, the location's important, right? Um, may be heard at the apex due to the regurgitant jet striking the mitral valve, but that's not where it tells you where it's best heard, okay? So immediately you can start ruling out Mr. Taps, right? Because it's diastolic, number one. So you gotta go to your other ones. Okay, so you know that this Austin Flint moment, it's that it could be heard best at the apex. Okay, or heard at the apex, but not heard best. It's still heard best at the right upper sternal border because it's in the aorta, okay? But this is something that it can do, and it's also known as the Austin Flint murmur, okay? You're gonna hear a lot of like famous people names that they weren't famous until you saw them in a medical book, so don't worry, okay? Um, acute aortic regurgitation diagnosis, again, diastolic murmur. Sometimes it's absent, sometimes it's not present. So then, again, we have to look at the symptoms that they come in with, right? Um, it's not a systolic murmur, it's a diastolic murmur. Um, tachycardia, hypotension is gonna be important, all right? S3, right, there's regurgitation, so there's gonna be backup of fluid that hits the wall before it happens, okay? Um, stigmata of subacute bacteria endocarditis, they may have those kind of symptoms as well, right? Uh, and then, Chest X-ray will show you pulmonary edema. Again, there's backed up of fluids, okay? EKG will show you normal or non-specific findings. I've never really made a diagnosis of a murmur on an EKG, so don't sweat it. Echo is the test of choice, all right? It's really important. So a transesophageal echocardiogram or MRI, if you're suspecting a dissection on these patients, because remember sometimes an aortic regurgitation can be caused by an aortic dissection. 
But then other things have to start happening, right? Sharp tearing chest pain or in the abdomen that radiates to the back. Sometimes they have like a pulsatile mass. All of these things are very important. Hypotension, very, very important. All these things are very important um, to take a look at. So you have to look at the patient as a whole, okay? Um, uh, when it's chronic, again, guys, like you have to look at like if there's any sort of like regurgitation, like or heart failure symptoms in these patients. That's usually what you're looking for in these patients, also. Okay, so you suspect them based on the history and physical exam findings. That's always what they tell you, what they're experiencing. So if they start telling you shortness of breath, and you know sometimes they get like pain and stuff like that, and then the physical exam findings of you know, a diastolic murmur heard best at the right upper sternal border, or the uvula going back and forth, or the head bobbing, or the quinkies pulses, these are important things to take a look at when we're looking at the diagnosis of this through a physical examination. So, um, so back in the day, what we used to do is again, we would typically just do like serial echoes and see if it gets any worse. If it gets worse, then we'll do the aortic valve replacement. But that might be something that we might not do the same approach anymore because it sounds like it's going to get worse anyway, right? It doesn't get any better. Aortic valve regurgitations really don't get better. So the idea here is to just do a prosthetic valve replacement when you find an aortic valve regurgitation. But again, depending on uh, you know if you're going to do a prosthetic valve on this patient, and that you determine with what patient is presented to you. If you're gonna do a prosthetic valve or a mechanical valve, this is gross, this is basically just like, uh, don't, guys, relax, it's gonna be okay. This is just like a little protocol or algorithm that you follow based on the patient, what symptoms they have, and it's not, you do not need to know this for the exam. I can guarantee you, I did not put this on the exam because I can't even spend time looking at it, okay? So, again, how do you manage it medically? You could give them you know, vasodilators, especially if the blood pressure is adequate, because remember, if we're gonna give them like nitro or something, that's gonna drop their blood pressure, right? It's gonna dilate everything else, so you gotta make sure that they can actually handle it. Uh, you can use inotropic agents, and that's, you know, like contraction, things that we can help them with contracting, and you know, chronotropic agents are things with timing, like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and especially the inotropic agents if the left ventricular function is decreased, um, so, you know, anything less than like 40%, Avoid intra-aortic uh, balloon pumps. Again, that can make the uh, AR uh, worse. And then the surgery will be actually aortic valve replacement, but uh, we're probably gonna jump to the surgical intervention quicker than, than you might expect. Um, so again, chronically, again, you're treating this patient like if you're treating um, aortic regurgitation, uh, uh, congestive heart failure, you'll put them on some ACE inhibitors. That helps you for the remodeling of the heart and things like that. And then if they're super backed up with fluid, you know, giving them like diuretics and things like that. So it's not any much more different than somebody with CHF. Um, you could also do calcium channel blockers. That's gonna help you dilate as well. Long-acting nifedipine or ACE inhibitors will help you as well. And again, like I said, add diuretics um, as well. Now, as far as um, having them take antibiotics prior to procedures, uh, like usually specifically dental procedures that you wanna do, um, I would just prophylax all, all of them anyway. Like if they have AVR and they ask you, um, do you want to do a prophylaxis of um, uh, subacute bacterial endocarditis in this patient, which is what SBE stands for, then you do need to prophylax them. And a lot of times it's just amoxicillin, I think 500 milligrams right before, 30 minutes before the procedure. If they're allergic to amoxicillin, 
they've been given clindamycin just prior to the uh, the uh, actual um, procedure, a dental procedure, whatever dental procedure they're going through, because they can tend to um, acquire subacute uh, bacterial endocarditis as well. So prognosis again with treatment, the 10-year survival rate for patients with mid to moderate, uh, mild to moderate AR is 80 to 95 percent. So no, not everybody dies. Um, we do uh, we do have the capabilities of again doing the aortic valve replacement, but again. Understand the risk versus the uh, versus the, the uh, benefits. Is it a riskful surgery for this patient? Are they really going to be beneficial in that? Because remember, uh, you are putting a, a valve in them. You are using resources, and I'm not saying be stingy with anything. Um, my um, method has always been do everything you can whenever you can for every patient, unless they don't want it. But on that, you are all go all the time. That is your son, daughter, mother, father, grandmother, tia, tia, whatever you want to call them. If you get in the habit of treating your patients like they're your family members, you'll be very successful, I promise. Because that's a game changer. That is a huge game changer. And, that, and you should let them know that, hey, I'm going to treat you like you're my own mom. Not immediately that, because you have to understand, so the coats that you're wearing now, they come with like that power, right? And they know that you have power. They, you literally have their life in their hands. So I don't stand up when I see patients. I sit down to see my patients, and I let them know that everything's going to be okay. And that's important. I can't make a slide on that. You, you have to know that on your own. That's really important. So when you're doing that, understand you're not always going to be standing with the patient, and you're going to be next to the patient, and you're going to be next to your team, and it is all go all the time. You are doing whatever it takes to save this person's life. And obviously, you're going to be more motivated when it's a younger person, but you're doing that for everybody. Okay, just keep that in mind if I teach you anything. Um, and then on top of that, um, just know that you're not always going to be successful. That's the sad part of that. But the way that you get over that is that you understand that when you walk out, you have to know that you did your best. Um, you can't take it home with you because then... One of the AV blocks, they might not. Uh, one thing, now that we're talking about this, and then I want to move on to mitral valves, uh, don't be afraid to like talk to somebody, like therapy-wise. That's a thing. Like we, we see too many things that people don't see, so it's okay to talk. It's okay. In fact, probably know somebody that's in the field that helps a lot, uh, but or you know date them, because then that uh, it's really hard to tell like a banker, I. This is personal experience. <laughs> like, she makes a lot of money now, though, anyway, because of animal. But anyway, here's the thing. Uh, the thing is that um, it helps to talk because we, we, we see some shit. Like, we, it's bad. Like, I, you know, it's really bad. So just keep that in mind. Your mental health is really important. If you're not right, if you're not healthy, you're not going to make anybody else healthy around you. So that's really important. All right, so mitral valve stenosis is the first one we're talking about, but there's also mitral valve regurgitation. Don't look at this, you're fine. So mitral stenosis, by far the number one cause is rheumatic valve disease. This is in quotation because you're probably going to see it again. I will just do this again so that you understand that number one line is very important. I'll do it again so you understand that this, this, this is what we call flash memory here, guys. This is really important. Okay, you need to know that the number one cause is rheumatic valvular disease. Okay, important. That's going to come up on the exam. Okay, I promise. Uh, yeah, I promise. Okay, 
So I don't have broken premise, I'm just saying. So other causes could be congenital, but it could be acquired like a left atrium myxoma. That's basically a, uh, a tumor in the atrium. Um, post, a, post AFib ablation, left atrial thrombus, prosthetic valve dysfunctions, mitral, uh, large mitral valve vegetations, um, which are just little things that, you know, that cling on to the mitral valve through endocarditis or whatever diseases that you're going through. Inflammatory states like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis as well. So in stenosis, rheumatic, again, fibrosis and calcification of leaflet tips, commissures, and subvalvular apparatus. That's what's happening and that's what's causing the narrowing of the valve. Um, in severe annular calcification, so again, now calcification is happening. There's an obstruction due to myxoma or a thrombus, an actual um, tumor or some sort of clot is actually causing the stenosis and then degeneration of prosthetic valve. So yes, we can put a prosthetic valve in there, but that can also become calcified as well. So you have to keep that in mind and sometimes uh, know that those are the patients that when they get the porcine valve, those are the ones that you're probably not expecting to meet that 10-year uh, survival rate. So pathophysiology, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. This is something you can take a look at. I don't spend time on things I'm not gonna grade you on but you can always revert back to this if you're having trouble in your patho class. Um, so, uh, the second stenosis, again, slow development of the high left atrial pressure is something really important to remember as well. Um, you may have some hemoptysis, especially if there's some right heart failure. If you have a patient that has mitral um, stenosis and they present with hemoptysis, so coughing up blood, not a good sign. It's not a good uh, a mortality rate on those patients. The prognosis is gonna be pretty poor. Um, even if you go ahead and do a valve replacement again, we have to determine the risk versus the benefits. What we do for this patient is really gonna be that beneficial for them in the long run. Left atrial enlargement and mitral stenosis. Again, most of you with a combined mitral stenosis and mitral regurgitation as well, they can happen at the same time. And it does not lower the pressure gradient, but there's a high incidence of AFib and so there's a high incidence of thromboembolic events, about 15% of them uh, per year. So these patients, again, will need anticoagulant therapy, okay? But these are not the patients you can put on the 10A inhibitors because remember those 10A inhibitors are for avalvular atrial fibrillation, right? So this is not somebody that you can uh, hook them up with um, those 10A inhibitors because it, it's not studied to do that just yet. Signs and symptoms, again, um, pretty, uh, pretty asymptomatic until like it gets really severe. You don't really notice much, but again, this is heart failure symptoms, right? Like something is narrowed, it's not gonna get to the point where, um, it's gonna get to the point where you're not able to pump out blood, so it's gonna cause heart failure. And that's really what happens with a lot of these murmurs, that is you're gonna get heart failure symptoms. But here, you'll have some palpitations, you're gonna have maybe some chest pain as well. Hemoptysis, like I mentioned, that's a poor prognosis if they start developing that as well. Um, edema, hepatomegaly, just like your heart failure symptoms. So when it comes to that, that's why since the symptoms are so alike, you have to know what the location and the timing of the murmur is in order for us to determine what the treatment is gonna be. So that's one thing we need to understand. Most of these are just gonna be what the causes, and you understand that the cause for mitral stenosis most likely is gonna be some sort of rheumatic disease. So like when we were talking about ankylosing spondylitis, that's a rheumatic disease as well too, so, but rheumatic fever is big time on this, so you have to just know your stuff on that. You have to know that this is somebody that had strep and it didn't get any better and now it's developed into rheumatic fever and now they have changes in the mitral valve, specifically stenosis, and they're having some heart failure from that. So 
that's that's the point you need to get to. Like you have to think a little bit outside the box of what's going on with these patients. All right. So they may sometimes have an embolism, like I said, um, which then can lead to a stroke. Um, so you have to think about you know what's happening there because we need, we know that stenosis um, is not going to let the blood flow right. It's going to stick around. It's going to clot. Once the contraction happens, it causes a stroke. Um, there's also Ardner syndromes that you need to know, and that's basically pressure on the laryngeal nerve, and it can cause like a hoarse voice. Okay, um, pretty rare finding, but something good to know. Angina may occur from right heart stream, second to severe pulmonary hypertension as well. Um, and with pulmonary hypertension, um, I think this is class two, but you don't need to know the classes yet. Have you guys done pulmonology yet? Uh, so I'm not gonna get into the classes of high, uh, pulmonary hypertension with you. So this can present for the first time in pregnancy because of the load that you have while you're pregnant. Um, you tend to accentuate a lot of those murmurs, and specifically with mitral valves murmurs, you're going to hear that a little bit more, more uh, into it uh, because there's so much more volume overload now. Um, have you ever seen this before? This little drain. Some of you have not ish. You have, so we're good. All right, we're not, you don't need to know it for me, so you're fine. Okay, here, you want to see it again? Somebody was like, you guys know what's happening here? It, all right, this is a, if, you, if you went over this in pathophysiology, this is a good slide to kind of help you break that down. I don't go over much over it because we're short on time, but also because I'm not going to test you on it, okay? So, auscultation again, um, accentuated S1 in the mid to moderate mitrostenosis patients. Um, you may have a soft to absent S1 in severe mitrostenosis. You can hear an S3 sound never present, uh, an S3 sound is never present um, since early diastolic finding is impaired. The big thing here is again, when you're going to hear it, it's going to be a diastolic murmur, right? That's what we're looking for. And you're going to hear it in the apex. So again, the timing is diastolic and the location is the apex, okay? This is not going to radiate up like a mitral regurgitation. It may go down, but like we don't really do that. We don't look at the murmur anywhere else. And that's the best way to uh, look at that. So there's another thing that they'll tell you, um, you know, they talk about crescendo and decrescendo, and basically just tells you the uh, shape of the murmur, and that's what that's called. So um, like in aortic stenosis, it's crescendo, decrescendo, like right? So if you don't know what that is, just goes, uh, uh, not, not. like that's it. Yeah, I don't even know how to explain that to you. That just is what it is. I, if you ever even try to hear me singing or hear me, Try to sing, I, I couldn't tell you what's crescendo, decrescendo, but it's just up and down. So here, I'm telling you, by the time that they've already told you the location, by the time that they've already told you the timing of the murmur, who cares about crescendo, decrescendo? Like, it's it's over. Like, you already have it down. And many times you can't, I think in AFib, you can't even hear it. Like, there's no crescendo if there's AFib. Like, so there's too many changes happening, and by the time you're presented with a murmur question, and you have the timing, the location down, it's, it's too late, you're, you're already gonna get it down, I promise. So, um, low pitch diastolic murmur at the apex, right? So we told you, again, low pitch or rumble or whatever, it, it doesn't matter. They told you diastolic, that's the timing, they told you the location, which is the apex, we're in, right? Diastolic, it's not Mr. Taps, right? Or Mr. As Arms, right? It's the opposite of that. 
right? So we know that it's not going to be mitral regurgitation. Now, how do you know that they're talking about mitral? Because they're telling you it's in the apex. So something in the apex that's diastolic has to be mitral stenosis. You see how you break that apart? Now again, it, it's easy now when I say it, but you have to do it again and again. You have to, you guys have access to rash? Yeah, so like there's a, a way that you can rush, ask yourself only dialogue disorder questions. Do that. Because on the day of your pants or your pack rat or your your comp, whatever it is that they use on you, at least four questions are gonna be on murmurs. At least. On my exam there's gonna be at least like ten. Okay, because you gotta know it. You gotta know it. You gotta know how to pick up these things because obviously they kill people, right? So we gotta know we got, we gotta teach you how to look for that. So um, you can have an opening snap, mitral stenosis murmur, what else? Chest x-ray, again, you may see some left atrial enlargement with possible pulmonary edema. If you're not good at looking at x-rays, you're not gonna find this. It's pretty difficult to look at. Um, but the best way to really look at it was gonna be your echocardiogram. That's gonna show you a doming of the mitral valve, turbulent inflow, pressure gradient measured by Doppler can also happen here. But again, at the end of the day, um, echo is gonna be the best way to look at it. You may see some left atrial enlargement, which on an EKG, if you are looking at that, it's going to be an inverted uh, P wave in V1 or a biphasic P wave um, in, uh, P, uh, in V1. Did I say P1? All right, so the P wave in V1 is either going to be like biphasic or inverted. That's how you know there's left atrial enlargement. Right atrial enlargement um, can be seen on EKG where the P wave is pointy on the, v, on the V1 lead as well, okay? So heart rate and mitral stenosis, the biggest thing that I could tell you is that if you increase the heart rate in these patients, the symptoms will get worse. So we would put these patients on beta blockers as well. So if you see them that the excellent uh, exercise intolerance will be poor, uh, or tolerance will be poor. Um, so again, as soon as you increase the heart rate on these patients, their symptoms are gonna get worse. So that's a very important question to ask your patients. How far can you walk? Like, can you walk two blocks? Can you three blocks until you get tired. Those are important questions to ask your patients that tell you that they're showing your breath. Because we want to know if it's dyspnea on exertion, which is one of those findings of mitral stenosis or mitral regurgitation as well. So um, medical treatment would be uh, beta blockers, right? So like I said, if the heart rate increasing gets you more symptomatic, then what do we do? We decrease the heart rate. We give them beta blockers, okay? You can give diuretics. Um, if they develop atrial fibrillation, we have to give them anticoagulants. Um, these aren't the people that you're gonna maybe cardiovert them out of the, uh, the, the AFib, then, then you, they might just need a valve replacement, okay? Um, so if they move on, they need rheumatic fever and endocarditis prophylaxis, that's gonna be very important as well, especially if you've seen that they've had rheumatic fever in the past, and if we want to prophylax them from any sort of uh, subacute bacteria endocarditis as well. So um, you can do mitral valve repairs, which is a surgical incision of the components of the commissure to increase the size of the opening. If that's not possible, then we'll do a replacement of the whole valve as well. And you can go bovine, that's what it was called, bovine, versus porcine. So bovine would be from a cow, porcine would be uh, from pork, um, and then either mechanical versus uh, bioprosthetic, bioprosthetic are your bovine and your porcine. Now, um, I know some of you are like geniuses here, um, so you're gonna be like, well, do you need to anticoagulate somebody that has a bioprosthetic valve? Um, on occasion, some studies will tell you that for at least six months, you should still have them anticoagulate if there are some sort of immunosuppression, like a diabetic patient, somebody that has peripheral arterial disease, or somebody that does have peripheral vascular disease, 
they might still need some sort of anticoagulant. Other than that, you do not need to anticoagulate somebody that has a bioprosthetic valve replacement. The people that absolutely do need a um, anticoagulation, specifically and only with warfarin, are the mechanical valve patients. And again, the INR level that you want them at is 2.5 to 3.5. Have you guys gone over warfarin incumbent at all? Like how to manage it? And you can take some antibiotics and stuff? Okay, you need to go over that for sure. So, um, again, there's certain foods you can't have. Like, I think you can't like drink grapefruit juice either. With it, that like increases it or decreases it. It's what? There we go. CYP something. Yeah. All right, cool. There we go. I'm gonna just what's your name? All right, I read this. Perfect. So, talk to her after that. Um, Again, so the multiple things. Um, microstenosis, like I said, in pregnancy, you might be able to hear a little bit more. Um, so, and it's the first time you might even hear the patient have it. But again, it's tolerated poorly because of increased blood volume, increased cardiac output, and then increased heart rate. So there's still always going to be palpitations. And the first thing that we think about, especially in the pregnancy, you know, we're thinking about like a pulmonary embolism. So we slow them down with beta blockers. You could also do a balloon valvuloplasty to get them through the pregnancy if needed, and then you take it out once they deliver. Valve stenosis summary again, pathophysiology is related to the severity of pressure, slowly progressive. The gradient again will be related to the flow. There could be an upstream compensation as well too. Um, but again, you have to treat the symptoms before it gets super bad and irreversible. If it becomes irreversible or intolerable, we have to do the valve replacement. Okay, mitral regurgitation again, uh, that's a lot to talk about. Definitely gonna be caused by ischemia. All right, here we go. So, um, again, anytime you have any sort of other obstruction happening, like a tumor or some sort of thromboembolism, that's something really important to remember. You should know Barlow syndrome, which is MVP, mitral valve prolapse. The thing that we're, we're going to talk about it as well in a little bit, um, you're going to hear what that's called a mid-systolic click. Anytime you hear that mid-systolic click, you think about MVP, okay? Um, and we'll talk about MVP in a little bit. Again, other etiologies could be infected endocarditis, uh, left atrial enlargement, coronary artery disease as well, especially if there was a papillary muscle dysfunction where there's a global MI that we call, um, and then hypertrophic, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy can also cause um, uh, mitral regurgitation as well. So again, acute MR, you see pulmonary edema, like I said, and everything else. Anytime there's some sort of valvular problem, it's not, con it's not contracting right, it's not moving the fluid right, so you're going to have the fluid back up a little bit. In chronic MR, same thing, they're still going to have CHF signs and symptoms, right? In the acute patient, you might just have a little bit more angina than you would in a patient that has a chronic MR. So, in your patient that has acute mi uh, mitral regurgitation, uh, you may hear that MVP murmur, like I said, which is the mid-systolic click. Um, and then the murmur does respond to any sort of provocation as well. Now, big thing here is going to be that, again, they're going to give you CHF signs and symptoms. That's the biggest thing again. And they're almost always going to be present in these patients. That's what's going to help you, lead you to believe that this is a mitral regurgitation, all right? The hand grip does increase the afterload, and it does, um, um, you will also see it again um, in patients that have like, um, aortic regurgitation and VSD as well. So again, that's when you have to help yourself. Remember when there's like a Gallagher-Rodin's phenomenon, that's what helps you determine the difference. So here, this helps distinguish the number from that of a aortic stenosis, which decreases in intensity with increased afterload. And again, if that confuses you, you could just go back to that other slide that I showed you. 
in chronic uh, mitral regurgitation, you're going to have a high-pitched hollow systolic murmur. So when we say pan-systolic or hollow systolic, it just means through the whole systole. So if they say early systolic, at the end of the day, it's systolic. So this is a systolic murmur. I don't care if they say early systolic, late systolic, hollow systolic, pan-systolic, it's all systolic. So just understand that. The next thing you need to know is the location, apex. But they also take it to the next step and tell you that it radiates up to the axilla. That's how Mr. Taps starts to make sense. So as soon as he says something about systole, I'm thinking about Mr. Taps. Then they tell me that it's in the apex, I'm thinking about the mitral part, right? So what's mitral in, um, in Mr. Taps is mitral regurgitation, all right? Then you telling me that it radiates up is fine. I'm already home. Like, you could tell me that if you wanted to, right? So. There could be an S3 that's present as well, again, because there's a lot of volume that's uh, being accumulated as well, because again, the contraction's not happening. I told you there's like CHF-like symptoms, so obviously we're gonna have a little bit of S3 in there as well. You'll see a pulse pressure that's narrow, so instead of the wide pulse pressure that we're seeing in, in AR, I believe, here you're gonna see that it's close, and so now you'll see like a blood pressure of 120 over 100 or 135 over 111. Like, so that pulse pressure, the difference between the systolic and diastolic would be much more narrow than it was in the other murmur. This is pematrally also, uh, which is a broad notch waves in several, so also known as a biphasic, um, biphasic uh, P wave. So this is what you're gonna see. You're gonna look at uh, V1, biphasic here, or an inversion. You see the inversion also happening, so it'll be like a double. Um, so uh, if I could draw that for you, sometimes it would look like this, and I'll enlarge it. So before the P wave starts, it'll be like this. See that double notch? It could be like that, or it could be and that's not a junction rhythm, but it's 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 definitely something that's going on. How do I know it's not a junction rhythm? Because you won't see it like in lead two. You'll only see it in lead one. If you see it in lead two, then it's definitely a junctional rhythm, okay? Does that make sense? Excellent, almost there, almost there, almost there. Let's keep going. So diagnosis, again, the EKG is not gonna be that specific, right? Even though I said what well, you can find in the EKG. But uh, echocardiogram, in all of these murmurs, echocardiogram is gonna be the thing that you look for. Chest x-ray can help you out a little bit. You might see some uh, mitral calcification, a little bit of left atrial enlargement, but you know, good luck finding that. Um, so cardiac catheterization will be the, you know, a good way to see if it's mild, moderate, or you'll be able to you know, grade that to you uh, much more efficiently. Treatment again in acute MR, diuretics after the reducers, uh, intraaortic uh, balloon can help you as well. In chronic patients, again, we wanna prevent the remodeling of the heart, so we're gonna put ACE inhibitors or hydrolyzine, which is gonna vasodilate everything, lower your blood pressure also. Um, then again, if before you get the, the uh, ventricular dysfunction, you're probably gonna have to do the replacement of the mitral valve. With any time that you're doing any sort of, um, let's try to get through tricuspid too and get out of here. So tricuspid stenosis, again, what I was telling you was anytime that you're going to put the patient on a mechanical valve, you have to hear a click, okay? There has to be a click when you're listening to the heart. If there's no click and they have a mechanical valve, there's a clot. 
and they were, they were sub-therapeutic on their INR level. So please be mindful of that. You have to hear a click if there's a mechanical valve. No click with a mechanical valve is a thromboembolism until proven otherwise, and we need to evacuate it as soon as possible because that's gonna cause a stroke, okay? And check the INR level, right, because it's probably gonna be sub-therapeutic. So, um, what else do you need to know here? Most common etiologies will be, uh, again, rheumatic fever. Very common to see this um, when you have patients that have a tricuspid um, stenosis. More commonly, you also see that in your exam, not commonly like in life, but commonly in exams, will be carcinoid syndrome. They love to get carcinoid syndrome at endocarditis, specifically endocarditis from IV drug abusers. They love to attack this, uh, the tricuspid stenosis uh, or the tricuspid valve. Um, lupus, and they could also have congenital problems as well. So rheumatic tricuspid stenosis, um, again, anytime you're dealing with anybody that has either rheumatic fever or other rheumatic issues, you have to listen to the heart. I, I'm telling you right now, you have to listen to the heart and lungs of all your patients. This is really, really important. Um, this is directly correlated with anything that um, can cause them to have shortness of breath as well because again, that's the next thing that goes to the pulmonary artery and goes into the lungs. So if it's, we're not pumping enough or pumping too much to go to the lungs, you're going to have uh, some sort of pulmonary vasculature issue as well. Um, the right atrial enlargement is observed as a consequence, right, because where is the uh, tricuspid valve is right next to the right atrium, so that's exactly what's happening. So the obstructive venous return results in hepatic enlargement. So again, because we're getting backed up, things are gonna to start to enlarge everywhere else. You're gonna have like a right heart failure. You might have decreased pulmonary blood flow and then eventually peripheral edema. So again, if I'm stenosed or if I'm regurgitating from the tricuspid valve, everything's getting backed up and not moving forward to the lungs like it needs to. Um, so we're gonna cause uh, an issue there. So carcinoid syndrome or carcinoid heart disease, again, uh, is the carcinoid valve lesion, again, Characteristically, manifests as fibrous white plaques located in the valvular and endocardium. The moment that you need to know that statement is when they show you that on an echocardiogram. So that's something to remember, that's the finding on the echocardiogram. Um, you'll see that the leaves are thick and rigid and again, reduced in the area. Um, but I will tell you, they'll give you other symptoms for this patient and you have to realize that they're going either through a carcinoid syndrome and then they'll give you the, e, the, not the EKG, the echocardiogram on those patients as well. If it's congenital, again, um, usually you're gonna catch this pretty early. You'll see this um, early in a patient, um, you know, first few months of life as well. Um, they may manifest an incomplete uh, drop in leaflets and then shortened or malformed cordes. Um, but again, it'll be a defect that you find pretty early. The patient will sometimes become like cyanotic and things like that. So it'll be up to you to do a return, uh, do a, an echocardiogram to determine what the patient is dealing with. Infective endocarditis, again, like I said, specifically patients that um, are going to be IV drug abusers. Eventually, we talk about endocarditis and caused by IV drug abusers. We're thinking about staph aureus, um, and that's gonna be something that I present to you when we talk about endocarditis together. So again, pretty uncommon, but again, like I said, IV drug abusers are the people that we're gonna go after here. Other mimickers, uh, things that can sound like um, and sound like uh, tricuspid stenosis would be constricted pericarditis, restrictive cardiomyopathy, and this is again, when you think about like amyloidosis, sarcoidosis, these are things that can cause restrictive uh, cardiomyopathy. If you know anything, if you learned anything, I'm not sure if I go over it with you, but you have to know the causes of restrictive cardiomyopathy, and the two most common ones are amyloidosis and sarcoidosis. 
um, amongst other, but those are the two common ones that come up often in your exam. And a pulmonary embolism can also um, cause you to have like that tricuspid stenosis sound as well. Question. Um, restrictive cardiomyopathy, two most common causes on your exam would be uh, amyloidosis and sarcoidosis, and then there's a few other things. Um, so again, this is a whole lot. The only big thing that you really need to remember from here is that there's a diastolic murmur audible along the left sternal border or the xiphoid process or the xiphoid, which increases with inspiration. So just break it down, diastolic, right? So it's not Mr. Taps. Then the next thing that they tell you is the left upper sternal border, that's the location. Once they do this that, we're already home. We already know that this is a tricuspid um, murmur, and the fact that they told us is diastolic, we know that it's not going to be a regurgitation, okay? Um, again, you could do a uh, chest x-ray, but the biggest thing on any of these murmurs is going to be an echocardiogram. Anytime they ask you what is the best or the most definitive, it could be a cardiac catheterization, but most of these things are going to be um, done by an echocardiogram. You can easily find this on an echocardiogram, okay? So the treatment here will, again, like if you're treating um, CHF, right? You reduce the salt, you reduce the pressure, you reduce, you diurese the patient as much as you can, you prevent any sort of remodeling of the heart as well. These are all very, very important. So you're treating it like it's a heart failure and you think, make sure you think about like the cardiac output that you're gonna preserve on the patient as well. So usually um, we don't do surgery on these patients unless it gets super uh, symptomatic um, and also if there's an aortic valve problem in it as well specifically um, if they've already had an aortic valve replacement then you probably need to do a tricuspid replacement as well on those patients. Alright, so we're going to stop. What slide number are we on? 115 and we're at, we got to go to 146, right? Oh yeah, we gotta call it out, that's it. <laughs> Wave the flag. Um, any other questions, comments, concerns, complaints? I see you guys two more times. Um, and in other news, I think, I, have you guys heard of what interactive cases are? You haven't? Oh, that's so much fun. Huh? What is that? I think so. So I don't know how they're going to do it this year. I hope they do it the same way that we've always done it. Because I'm big. Uh, can you stop recording, please? <laughs> and then if you record this on your own, that's messed up. <laughs>